1: But I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast.
2: Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Today's podcast was not voted for by patrons, but it was something I've been wanting to really dig into to get lost in. swan dive down into, and I thought you might like to see what I found and what I think about it. I wanted to compare and contrast two serial killers who, when you really dig into their lives and how they conducted themselves, you see vast differences as well as very glaring similarities. So for fun, let's talk about two very well-known serial killers. Edmund Kemper, or the co-ed killer, and Gary Ridgeway, the Green River Killer. Joining me today is Dr. Brandon Bogle, PhD, though we all know him by Doc, AKA the hillbilly head Shrieker. He is a licensed clinical psychologist and serves as the clinical director of behavioral health at a state prison in Tennessee, where he works intimately with prisoners whose offenses range across the spectrum, including violent crimes and serial murder. Doc's clinical and research interests include deviant behavior and understanding the various factors and reciprocal processes that facilitate and propagate such behaviors and all the other points to make him look super fancy and super overqualified to be speaking to me. (laughs) So welcome to the podcast, Doc.
1: Mm, It's my pleasure to be here. How are you?
2: (laughs) I'm good, how are you?
1: I'm doing well.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you're my first guest, so welcome.
1: Uh, It's an honor.
2: Okay, so today we are definitely going to be talking about Um, Edmund Kemper and Gary Ridgway. So most of us know quite a bit about these two men in particular. They are in the top shelf, so to speak, of serial killers in the true crime world. That is not to glorify what they did. They are vile, to be sure. Big Ed, his family called him Guy, was a whopping six feet, nine inches tall, or still is, and nearly 300 pounds. And his presence had a a volume or a mass to it, I guess you could say. Gary Ridgeway was the polar opposite. Gary is five feet, 10 inches tall, which is still tall, at least to me, who is short, but not overly so, and he was a very lean man. Where Ed had a certain presence, Gary comes across as behaving, at least in society, as a lot more docile. In everything I've seen him in, he seems to speak softer, held his shoulders into himself. He's quiet. Ed seems a little bit of the opposite, somewhat lumbering. So without further ado, let's dive in. Now, well, let's talk about some of the similarities and differences in their childhoods and teens. And just in case, if you don't know much about either of these men, I've covered them both, and I'll put the link to these podcasts in the notes if you want to know more. So getting into it, we have their childhoods. So some of the similarities that we see are that, and I'm looking at notes over here, um, both had domineering mothers who were very verbally emasculating and abusive towards men. Uh, mothers fought with their partners often, seemed deeply unhappy, but outwardly presented a positive social appearance. They were well liked by people outside of the home and Clarnell was a breeder. Mary was a gardener, but both had positive uh, hobbies. Any thoughts,
1: sir? So it would be interesting to make note of the the historical time, right? Mm-hmm. So social impressions are pretty pretty important, right? Because they both presenting both mothers are presenting in public as maybe June Cleaver, but at home behind closed doors, they're they're just ruling the roost. Mm-hmm. Which I think in the conversations we've had. Is some of the the most compelling reasons that developed the personalities for both Edmund and Gary, and why they had this kind of love hate relationship with their moms, uh, thus the the mommy issues.
2: Right. Okay. Um, so both boys were witness to the loud verbal abuse between the parents. Um. Both mothers emasculated their sons. They were verbally abusive, physically abusive to a degree. They were very cold and distant. Uh, Both mothers had been successful in their school days. They were cheerleaders, writers. They were popular. They were considered attractive. So what kind of impression does that give you?
1: Again, I think it goes back to this um, impression management and Mm -hmm. what their status actually meant, right? So if you' if you have this popularity, then you you may start to develop this idea of like I have this importance, not necessarily to the degree of narcissism, but I, I would say they both fit for um, pretty high on the narcissistic range. And so they may take that control or whatever they have experienced in their own life, right? So what did their parents? do? How did their parents interact? And was this same pattern modeled for them? Taking this, this idea of a being popular, being a cheerleader, being attractive, it's going to bring a lot of positive attention. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, we don't know. I've never seen an interview with, with either of the moms, but it certainly sounds like that they um, used that a social uh, capital as a way to kind of their own um, identities, and mm-hmm. therefore took that to these these roles within the home. So mm-hmm. emasculating, controlling, um, and it you know if you have a sense of power, what's what's that phrase? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yep, and so what we may see with both moms here is like this: this impression management on the outside, but having a tremendous amount of domineering on the inside.
2: Mm-hmm. Right, and and I think that when it came to Mary, which was Gary's mother, um, her family was very very religious, and I know that she was not. She was very specifically told that she couldn't wear these kind of clothes. She could wear these clothes. Mm-hmm. There's a story where Gary's mother actually had painted her fingernails, you know, fingernail polish, and her father had taken a hammer to the end of her fingers, telling her she was not allowed to wear fingernail polish.
1: Wow. So kind of like naturally causing the bruising. Well, if your fingers are going to be colored, they are going to be naturally colored.
2: Yeah. If you want to be a, a peacock, then let me make sure that you have plenty of plumage, so to speak. Yeah. so I think that that some of that plays into the at least in in Mary's case that she ruled the roost because of the what appears to be some pretty strong control in the house for her and she did not it's not that I mean no one appreciates their parents treating them like that but I feel like maybe there was a part of her that's like no one's going to have that kind of power over me ever again
1: yeah and it you know it could be. I think it's natural for uh, young adults or adolescents to kind of push against those boundaries, right, mm-hmm. and to rebel. Um, but it's it feels like in this case it was to uh, to an extreme degree, which is what we see in Gary and yeah. a lot a lot of extremes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, almost compulsions and in, in his behaviors, but it's it's almost like this sense of overcorrecting. And going to an extreme to be both pious and hypersexual
0: mm-hmm.
1: meaning that she is controlling both of those and she's yeah. controlling the narrative of what sexuality means and can she be what like the virgin and the whore simultaneously and that gives her control over men gives her control over her son and therefore may give her a sense of control over the other parts of her life where she was feeling constricted, right? And again, this is just conjecture because we're we're kind of looking at this with some hindsight bias and through this lens, knowing what the environment kind of helped create within Gary, mm-hmm. but it, you know, these these things hold true. I see it every day with the the uh, inmates that I work with at the prison. And it's these patterns, you see them over and over and over. And when I talk to these guys, they are saying the same thing. Like it all goes back to these early experiences and how they learn to interact with the world.
2: Right. And and we do have the advantage of looking through the hindsight lens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So as far as Clarnell goes, um, Ed was very vocal in a, in a lot of his interviews that are easily accessible on YouTube where he talked about how his mother would his exact word was that she would field strip men. So you get the sense that she would just stand. I mean, he used kind of some body language while he was speaking about it. But you know that she was six foot tall, every bit. And she wasn't like a heavy woman, but she was a big woman and a very big presence. And so she, you know, she would just stand there and field strip these guys. And Ed's father actually said that you know, testing nuclear stuff during the war was easier than dealing with Clarnell. Both of the mothers had these like cheerleader and writer. It just seems like whether it was self imposed or whether there was pressure from maybe the parents or something, but that they were very hyper plugged into extracurricular stuff because they had an image to uphold, if that makes mm-hmm.
1: sense. Yeah, so but they, it's rep- like- they were kids represent us the way that we both both accept and reject this identity that's put on us by mm-hmm. society and the parents, and then trying to, to break away from that. Like, so it would be interesting to see how much manipulation was used for either of these women in terms of, did they use their sexuality? It sounds like Clarnell actually used her, like, physical imposing stature yes and when i've seen this interview when, we, when ed is talking about her field stripping you know it's a very distinctive way that he speaks mm-hmm. and the and not only the body language but if you listen to the the vocal inflection and the cadence it's you can almost hear the uh, muscles in his throat tighten When he's talking about her because he's probably transported back to when he's a kid seeing this happen so that fear never leaves you never and it's these moments where it's it's almost like this snapshot is taken and it it's it's not only what you experience visually but all through all of your senses and also your interpretation right so your perspective of what it's like to be a seven or eight year old kid seeing this woman who's six feet tall field dress or field strip this this dad who was actually larger.
2: I think he was six she, four or
1: six five. Yeah, he should have been an imposing figure, but the dynamic was certainly such that Edmund saw, man, Clarnell rules the roost, what she says goes. And this is the way I mean Everything we experience is normal until we have a sense of abnormality. Mm-hmm. Well, growing up, I didn't know I was poor until I compared myself to other people. And that's how um, Ed kind of learned all of this. This is how Gary learned all of this, how we learn all of this stuff. And it's interesting to to know and to see, like, she, she was teaching him. And his dad was teaching him this choreography about these interpersonal and romantic relationships. And I I don't know if he said this in an interview, but I bet he felt mortified for his dad. Oh, I'm sure. And so that's, you know, that that idea of like projection and transference Mm -hmm. and counter transference shows up all along the way, right? Because all of Ed's uh, victims were surrogates for his mom yep right
2: and we know this because he said it
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and you know it's it'd been interesting if had he started with clarnell would he not have killed anyone else probably well no because he had his his grandparents first
2: well the grandmother was the surrogate for his mother that was his first sort of uh, like killing of clarnell was his grandmother yeah. because she reminded him a lot of his mother, because she was uh, such a, uh, she went by Maud, and she was such a very strong female presence in his life, and she, I don't think she was as aggressive as Clarnell, but she was still, like, she ruled the roost, you know, there was just a lot of similarities. So yeah. I feel like Maud was the first surrogate.
1: Yeah, I agree, and he, he also had, it's interesting, and in, if you read, um, the uh, the parole hearing from, was it 17? He's kind of recounting this well when he can get a word in edgewise. Right. But, but then there's this interview where he's talking about his interpretation of the things that Claude would do. Like he, he has a story about ice cream and that there was, I don't know, I want to say four pints or gallons of his favorite ice cream. His he favorite. wasn't supposed. He wasn't supposed. It was like this forbidden fruit,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and his interpretation was that that was intentionally put there to tease him to to demonstrate how much power she still had. Right. So right. she's like, "I'm going to have this. I know it's your favorite. You can't touch it." And so that's that. That's interesting because it it gives you a glimpse into the lens through which he's looking at the world and starts to see it this way. And so if we look at all of these instances, that's where we can see, um, he he was how old when he killed his grandparents, 12? He was 15. 15, interesting. So he was
2: right coming out of puberty. Yeah,
1: it's, that's interesting because if you look at some of the diagnostic criteria, you know, it talks about having a uh, conduct disorder Prior to age 15 well you, that doesn't mean that you're diagnosed with it but you you would be diagnosable uh, meaning that you would demonstrate that kind of callousness and disregard for uh, the rules and mores of society
3: right
0: and so
1: he he's um, he really does see himself as a victim in this right and, and it's it's from the outside perspective, it's it's weird because we're like, how does he, like, it feels false, but he really does see, see himself as being the victim in that. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of that, um, the antisocial piece that we're seeing start to, to gather up and, and get some momentum in his life.
2: Right, right. Um, so, and speaking about the father, so both, both fathers had been more lenient with the children. So both families had three kids. Gary has, Gary's the middle child. He has an older brother and a younger brother. Ed is the middle child. He had an older sister and a younger sister. His older sister was five years older. So Alan, the younger sister was only two years younger. So he and Alan were close. I couldn't find any information about how close Gary was with his brothers, but I certainly didn't find anything that indicated that there was a lot of negativity or fighting or anything. But we do know that the fathers were more lenient with the children. Both fathers had jobs for a time where they were not home very often. So Ed's father was military there for a while before he became, I think, an electrician. And Gary's father was a truck driver, being married to one of those myself I understand that they're not home very often and so these Mm -hmm. boys are left with these very overpowering domineering mothers so both were the middle children both had amicable relationships with their siblings no apparent tensions or excessive fightings um there are some stories when it comes to ed where they I love how documentaries and other podcasts and people talk about um We know, Ed Kemper played these morbid games with his younger sister, you know, like electric chair and he ripped, Mm. he beheaded her Barbie. And I want you to speak on that. But I just wanted to say that I feel like they're taking these instances out of context. I think that that's just reaching. Um, Ed talked about how he, he and his sister had watched or maybe he and his friends had watched a program when he was a kid about a guy getting the death penalty and being in the electric chair. So why would they not reenact that thinking that it's interesting? I don't think that that's insight into his psyche as to why he later became a serial killer. And then the other thing is that they say, well, he ripped his sister's Barbie doll head off. So that was the beginning of his decapitation fetish. And that's Mm. not it at all. He will, I mean, he's always been pretty open and honest about these things. And even he said, she broke a favorite toy of mine. So I went and found her favorite toy and I broke it. And taking the head off is so hard to get it back on that little stub. And all of us girls have had dolls. I didn't have a lot of dolls, but we understand that. So I don't think that it's that he tore the head off and then that's an indicator that he's going to decapitate women when he's a serial killer. I think that that's innocent childhood games. But what do you think?
1: Yeah, and if so if you 100% sensationalism, right? Yeah, And Mm -hmm. if we look back at uh, the motto of Christine Chevik's Uh, station, if it bleeds, it leads.
2: Exactly.
1: And we we are all, you know, we have this natural interest in anything that is um, deviant, meaning it deviates from the norm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, kids are curious. We're curious. If we weren't curious about this stuff, there would be no true crime genre, but it's huge. Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: And if you, if you, if you go back and either read or see some of these interviews, and I really encourage everybody to look at this or to get this document, we can post a link to the parole hearing uh, from 2017 and be prepared to be infuriated because this woman uh, who is, I guess she's leading the the interview is really doing exactly what you're saying. She's saying, but you did this and you played these morbid games. and as a psychologist, what we have to look at is the function of a behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So what Ed is saying is like, yeah, he, she tore up his cap gun and it wouldn't fire. And so it was functionally uh, torn up beyond mm-hmm. um, use, right? So he was not able to use it in its intended manner. Now he could still point point and go bang, 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 but it wouldn't it wouldn't shoot the way it was supposed to shoot. So she had ruined it. And out so of jealousy. Out of jealousy because, and there's a whole backstory to all of this, but he got to go on a trip, I think to New York and she didn't get to go and she was upset as the story goes. Mm-hmm. So he he did, he took her Barbie and pulled the head off. But what he goes on to say in the interview is the head could easily be popped back on. Like it did not... Um, It put it in a a torn up state, but it did not.
2: It wasn't ruined for life.
1: It was not a permanent thing, right? You can pop the head back on. So he got a pair of scissors and cut the hands off of it. And and he said, now yours is destroyed to the degree that mine is destroyed. So now it's even. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And yeah, and you're going to see this. It's going to be sensationalized. And there are tons of podcasts that do that and they glorify and And it's interesting to see those things because it's the salacious details. But straight out of context, um, we can infer whatever, right? So it's kind of like if you you use data, you can massage it and present it in a way to support whatever you want it to support. Yeah. And that's where you have to look at the entire picture. And one thing I, I love about this podcast is you give the context of what's happened historically and what is the environment? What's the culture? And some people are like, oh, why are you basically, why are you wasting our time with that? It's because it's so important. Because if you there. just look at these isolated things, you're not going to get the full picture.
0: Mm-mm.
1: And, and, you know, again, going back to like psychology, when we are doing an assessment to see what's actually going on here to assign a Diagnosis. Every if you look at the DSM, every diagnosis in there has one of the same criteria, and it's it's not better accounted for by something else, right? And so that's why context is so important. We have to look globally, and get information from all of these sources. Mm -hmm. And you know, given that Ed was kind of uh, well, physically he was an anomaly right? He still mm-hmm. is six foot nine. He's probably shrunk a little bit and he he uses a wheelchair quite a bit now because he's had that stroke. but he was this outlier and probably felt odd his entire life. So seeing something that was also an outlier and deviant may have gave given him this sense of normalcy in some ways. And that's I think where um, people can bond over like dark humor and all of those things. It's one of the reasons that the true crime community is um, so beloved. It's very Mm -hmm. supportive.
2: Both boys were keenly aware of not being the favorite child. Both had a need for parental approval from both parents, but especially from their mothers. Both just accepted the verbal and physical abuse as normal, but they did move on to torturing and killing animals. So what say you for that? First of all, like being keenly aware of not being the favorite child. So
1: what what would that do to a kid? Oh, well, it will mess up your head, right? Because we, how do you become keenly aware of that? You you start to see differences in -hmm. the way that you're treated. Um, Like things will feel unfair. As you're receiving this, you're looking for external reasons. And when you can't find an external reason, we tend to internalize those. Sorry, the fundamental attribution error. It's one of these things where we will say we will we'll look for reasons to protect our ego and our identity and our self worth,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? And so, what happens is we're we're trying to bring about the sense of balance, and it will create a lot of cognitive dissonance because the parents are supposed to be the people who have this very rogerian unconditional positive regard and they're supposed to love and protect and nurture you right no matter what no matter what they're supposed to create a safe environment so that you can go out and explore the world and if we look at attachment styles right that's the um and you probably know this much better than me but like this avoidant this anxious avoidant It's like this ambivalence, pushing and pulling. We see that with both Gary and Edmund in relation to their moms throughout their life. I hated my mother, but I wanted to love her. I hated my mother, but I wanted to have sex with her, right? And so you've got this Oedipus stuff going on too. But because it creates this cognitive dissonance that the thing that's supposed to happen in a just world is not happening, we compensate for that. Because if we really accept that that for what it is, that maybe this person has some psychopathology themselves, maybe some untreated um, mental illness, or they're dealing with their own abuse from or trauma from their, their past, whatever has brought them to this place. But as, as kids generally, you know, we, we see things kind of dichotomously, black or white and it's mm-hmm. good or bad. Um, we, it's not until we, we get up older that we're able to have these abstract thoughts and realize that we can hold multiple emotions about the same person at the same time. So I can love this about this person, but despise this part of them. And when we're not savvy, so if you have low intellect, you have intellectual disability, or if you have um, not developed that, so maybe you have uh, arrested development for whatever reason, trauma is a big part of that, that you're not going to be able to reconcile those things and realize that, yeah, this appearance didn't provide this for me for whatever reason, right? In all reality, Ed's dad probably should have made the environment more tolerable. Mm-hmm. clarnell should not have made the environment intolerable however we we can go back in the history and say okay well what there's that that phrase right who hurt you
0: mm-hmm. but
1: what what are all of the experiences that caused you to develop to this degree that this is how you have learned to interact with the world and that's what personality disorders are is they are ineffective ways of learning to deal with Mm -hmm. And so if you learn, I'm not the favorite, then, and you want mom's approval, then you're going to start to pursue that. But you're also going to hold this resentment. And then that's where you're going to see it come out. Um,
2: Is it like a negative reinforcement kind of situation?
1: Yeah. So what, what, what will happen is like, and I think in the case of Edmund, if I'm remembering correctly, they... Again, going back to this interview that was going on at this parole hearing, she's bringing up this abuse of animals, and he he's basically saying this was a surrogate, this pet was a surrogate that was getting the love and affection and acceptance that I was not getting. Mm-hmm. And so I could not kill people, although I had fantasies of killing people. Yeah, what I could do was exert dominance over this animal, mm-hmm. right? So I could bury them. And so it's, and Ed is saying this as he, in retrospect, in the moment, he's not recognizing that. He's just pissed and feeling lots of bad emotions and, and probably can't identify what they are. But he's feeling really bad. He's feeling rejected. And so he's. he's lashing out exerting his power and control which is what he's seen has been taken away clarnell owns all of that right right and then um what's what Maud? Mary.
2: Maud was his grandmother yeah
1: the grandmother right so mm-hmm. she had all of that and so we, what we see is this pattern of it continues and continues and continues which is interesting because Maud was the paternal grandmother right meaning his dad grew up in that and then married someone very similar to his his own mother Mm -hmm. right and And so his maternal
2: grandmother was very strong personality as well
1: so it's it's, it's not hard to it's it's not hard to see this pattern just replicating 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 Mm -hmm. and you know i think and maybe i I don't wanna say I have a a soft spot for Edmund Kemper, but I do, I see there are vast differences between Ed and Gary, but a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. Um, Ed had these fantasies of killing, I think because he was feeling very stifled in lots of ways, right? And he he talks about this feeling. he would see these couples on dates and that's what he should be doing. And he's not having that opportunity. If you if you take that same sentiment, he's seeing the love and affection given to this animal. And that's what he should be getting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I think the same with Gary. It. Yeah, it's never resolved. And so it just keeps coming up over and over and over.
2: So as far as childhood differences go, um, Ed's parents divorced. Gary's did not. But the difference comes with caveats because Ed still watched his mother have verbal fights. And I think, you know, physical to a degree with his biological father and also his stepfathers and Gary watched his biological parents fight and fuss. So even though there was a divorce with Gary and not with Ed, I think, I mean, divorce with Ed and not Gary, I think that they both still watch their mothers treat their fathers pretty bad.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, it's 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 interesting because there are so, like, almost uh, railroad tracks, the parallels between these two.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then you see where they deviate, right? Gary was probably flying under the radar. Edmund could not walk into a room without commanding it. He still can't. Without commanding attention, because he is that physical, that visual specimen. Mm -hmm. And he interprets that, interestingly enough, that all other men in that room are intimidated and want to want to have that physical prowess that he has. And he doesn't want to fight him. He despises it. Yeah. Right. Because it's the alpha male, and you know, propagation of the species type type deal. But yeah, right. it's whether it was the parents staying together or separating what both of these guys experienced was a lot of unhealthy relationships. And yeah, so it's it's interesting well, how these patterns continue over and over and over.
2: And another difference with them that I think you'll find interesting is um, Ed's father Ed's father did not seem to have a hatred of women or have issues with women. He wasn't, didn't seem to be derogatory towards women at all. He was level-headed, whereas Gary's father was very vocal about his distaste for sex workers, but really to a degree women overall. Mm-hmm. So what would that, you know, having fathers that actually think differently when it comes to women, what do you think about that influence-wise?
1: Well, I think we, we see it. Look at the differences. In known victims. Right? Gary's really feels like it was this pervasive, uh, trying to exercise this hatred that he had of women. I think he even says somewhere in one of these interviews that he, he basically hates women. Um and Edmonds were, these were all surrogates for clarnell and this ineffectiveness he he was experiencing
2: so it's like gary's gary's taste for victims is um broad in that it's usually sex workers or whatever but they just represent a a woman women in general perhaps whereas with ed because his father was we don't know if he was respectful to women but there was certainly a level of i don't know what you would call it not But he was just a little more gentle or whatever. And so then you what comes to mind for me is that, you know, when Ed was tying one of his victims up, he accidentally brushed one of her breasts and he was mortified. He apologized Uh, to her and then he killed her, (laughs) obviously. But
1: And and he said, I just killed her friend. She doesn't need to know that she's going to die. He did not. um, He did not want to cause the mental torture. Mm-hmm. At least that's what it appears like. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gary, if I'm not mistaken, he, he very much depersonalized all of these victims. He talks about them in derogatory terms. And I would love to be able to find, I bet a lot of the verbiage he uses is exactly what his dad would say. Oh, I'm betting on it. Because he, he refers to it as like he's taking out the trash. Yes, And he, he has this um, inflated sense of morality of saying, I'm doing a, a service. I know best. Mm-hmm. And whereas Ed was not that way. As a matter of fact, I mean, uh, Gary killed s- some pretty young people. Yes. Um, Ed killed some one of his victims was in high school but she was posing as a college student and he says in this interview or yeah in this interview i would never kill a um a high school student Uh, yeah i think he refers to him as a child or a kid so he had this it's really messed up set of morals and and ethics
2: but there was still like something in place Yes. Even though it was an odd code of ethics, it was sort of like with Dexter, with Harry. Yeah, exactly. The code of Harry. He had a code. Yeah,
1: Harry's code. And again, taking it out of context without all of that information, if you just see them, then you're going to equate them to being the same. They're not the Mm -hmm. same. The function of what they did is not the same. Right. One was kind of directed as this outlet for basically hating women. In using women, and this is one of the hallmarks of psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder, is using people as objects and viewing them as objects, uh, a means to an end.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And well, and it's and like I, Gary
2: sort of reveled in the murder, whereas
1: yes, yes, exactly. Ed very
2: much was appalled by having to murder, but it was the means to the end.
1: Yes, very similar to Dhamma. Yeah. had to basically be drunk to be able to do this but it was the function was to prevent him from being abandoned right mm-hmm. he, he didn't want to murder whereas gary reveled in taking the life and he he strangled his women and so that's a very personal up close thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: and to, but... to be able to feel that that the body respond in all these different ways as they're during the dying process.
2: Right. Right. Okay. Um, so uh Ed was not a bedwetter that I could find, and we'll try to appease some of the um McDonald triad people, but uh Ed was not a bedwetter that I could find. I've never in all of my years of research and all the books I have have I read or seen anything about him wetting the bed past what is normal and average. Whereas with Ed, um, I mean with Gary, with Gary. Gary was a chronic bedwetter. And uh-huh. because of that, his parents, mostly his mother, I think, but both parents took part in making him sit in ice water baths. That was his punishment for um having an accident in the bed when he was until he was in his teens and we'll get to kind of more of what happened during those baths. But so, you know, just kind of touching the McDonald triad thing again, Um, Mm -hmm. Ed not appearing to be a chronic bedwetter, Gary being a chronic bedwetter, do you have anything to say about that?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the Holy Trinity, right? So fire starting Mm -hmm. bedwetting cruelty to animals. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've got two out of three for for gary we've got one out of three for edmund right Uh, there's what's interesting and i i don't know this to be the case but i if i were a betting man i bet there was a lot of verbal shaming from gary's mother mary was her name i think right yeah yeah about so it was probably this whole ritual he he wets the bed uh past whatever age, right? It's called nocturnal inuresis.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and then he there's this physical punishment of having to sit in cold water. There's this this is whole to do about it. So the whole whole house is gonna know what's going on. Right. It's a whole production. Um, it is a huge production and it's this pomp and circumstance that is designed to shame. You yes. just need the 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 nun there, this is bringing the bell, going shame, shame, right? Game of Thrones right. style, yes. And 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 what's interesting is this is all occurring while he is developing sexual, sexually, right. So there's this sadistic component,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there's this. Um, so who who is doing this? Both parents, but the mother is doing some other things that we'll come to talk about. Yeah, we'll get there. And it is all of these. So it's creating, it's conditioning all of these stimuli that shame is going to be associated with sexuality and pain. Right. And so that's where we can see these sadistic and masochistic. And then you add in the tendencies and then you add in the uh, verbal descriptions that his dad is talking about. These sex workers
0: mm-hmm. take
1: out the trash. And he's probably putting a lot of this humiliation that has been with him and the shame on he's transferring it over to the sex workers that he kills.
2: Right. I just find that fascinating. OK, <clears throat> so then we have Gary had, a, had to repeat a grade after failing. His parents argued a lot with Mary wanting to send him to a special school for cognitively disabled children. That was the verbiage in the research. And Ed passed every grade. Now, there is something to be said about how Ed talked about when he was a kid that he didn't think. He didn't know that he was so smart, which we'll get into. But, you know, even though he thought that he wasn't very smart, Ed didn't think he was very smart. He actually was. And I didn't see that he had any major issues with school, or at least I don't recall ever hearing that he'd been held back, whereas Gary had to be held back and his mother was a big advocate for putting him in a special school. So, you know, with Ed, that's probably not adding to the picture. But what do you think when it comes to Gary?
1: So it's, it's interesting that Mary was pushing for this special school, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that idea of the, the short bus. It's this visual right. cue, which is also this idea, especially at the time of the cold bath and the pomp and circumstance that there's something wrong with you that you're you're failing and being able to control your urine and you're peeing the bed. So I'm going to dress you down just like Larnell was field stripping these men. Mayor was True. doing the same thing. Right. And so it's if we look at the function, it's exerting power and control, which is the exact same reason that people rape. Right. So it was, it's this trying to take back control. So she was really pushing for this. Now, why would she do that? Why would she want to emasculate and humiliate her son? As far as the special school goes? The special school, the like, because it, it does feel like it's incongruent in some ways. My I want to present to the world that I have this perfect family, and then I'm going to domineer within closed doors. But if my son, yeah, if my son goes to this special school for uh, people with intellectual disabilities, this is what we've replaced mental retardation with. Mm
0: -hmm. If he
1: if he goes there, what what does that say? Like what what's the secondary gains? Is she getting um is she getting sympathy is it that i'm rejecting this person and i i push him out and that allows me to uh say oh well i'm going to take the the good the good kids and really put all of the uh affection toward them we don't know
2: it makes me think too that it's building upon that shame. It's building upon that you're less than, you're not as good because Gary was very aware. He was not a favored child. Um, you know, he was very aware that his brothers were treated better. He had the shaming with the, I mean, it would be humiliating enough to have an accident in your bed. Right. Even when you're a kid, um, But all of, you're talking about the pompous, you know, putting on the display and everything for the ice baths. And then it turns into, you are so, like, I'm so ashamed of you that I'm just going to send you to this other school because you're stupid. I feel like maybe that was kind of the angle that Mary was coming from. Like, it was just the next level of, you're, you're not good enough and here's another reason why.
1: Maybe she was taking out the trash.
2: Yeah. I think right. so. I think maybe she sensed something in her son and it was off-putting and she took it to a completely unacceptable level, but regardless.
1: Yeah. And so if we think about this from like the ice bath, mm-hmm. um, if we think about this from like a strictly behavioral modification standpoint, we're we want the behavior to decrease, right? So we're looking to punish. And we are adding something, we're adding this ice baths, so that's positive. That'd be positive punishment, but it's only punishment if the behavior decreases. And so since it was maintained, it it was reinforcing. So -hmm. it was positive reinforcement because it is, he, he may be getting some secondary gains, especially if he is becoming sexually aroused by the pain of the ice water then, among other
2: things that we'll get uh, to
1: <laughs> yes and and so it's all of these kind of covert things that are going on we're speculating on a lot of this but of what course. what is the function of it and what are the secondary gains right A lot of times if kids have experienced sexual abuse you'll see um, toileting issues in in the bed right? Or hygiene issues. So you'll see in your and in caprices, and that's to protect themselves, stay away from me, right? Mm-hmm. Or a lot of weight gain to try to make themselves unattractive or to, to give themselves actually like more insulation from that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so he was, Gary was probably feeling shame on all of these levels and the, the areas where he maybe had a sense of self-efficacy, which is this the degree to which you have confidence that you can do something. Mary's tearing him down on every level. Right. Does he does he ever did you find this in any of your research where he's given positive feedback for doing anything correctly? I don't know of any cases of it. But again, I, it's it's not salacious, so it may not be in the documents, right?
2: Right, it may I mean, you know, I'm I we weren't there so we don't know. There's a part of me that feels like that if he was doing something very good or positive that maybe his mother thanked him or there was some kind of acknowledgement, but he's not going to remember that or share that because I think he's hyper focusing on my mother was the problem and so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's like most abused people not every single day is horrible.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. When we focus on the negative Right. Mm-hmm. Read one right. negative comment and it sticks with you. And, oh, and, I know about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So is that's I think what we're what we're seeing here is how all of this is starting to build. And I, I've said this probably say this multiple times a day in, in like clinical practices, the lens through which we view the world. And the lens is it's shaped and refined every day through all of our experiences and for for gary we're seeing that shame is really and guilt shame i differentiate the two guilt is more related to describing something that you've done you've ran a stop sign you're guilty of that shame is more about being sorry for who you are intrinsically Mm -hmm. and so it's it's a big difference not being told that you've done something wrong, but you are something, wrong. right? Yeah, not good enough, right? If if we look at just where Ed was throughout his life, he's he starts out his life as an anomaly. He's thirteen pounds. Poor, yeah, maybe when that's Ed why was... was so mean.
2: Yeah, yeah. For those that watching at home. um, In the uh, Serial Killing, a podcast fan page that he created, thank you so much, um, we actually had a comment about that where I think you had asked how much did he weigh when he was born, and I knew that it was over 10 pounds, but anyway, in the comments, we all decided it was definitely 13 pounds, so I don't know how, yeah, that's a big baby, and I've not found anything where Clarnell particularly complained about the birth or anything like that. So I don't know if she had, you know, perhaps maybe she had a really rough birth experience, which created maybe, but then again, I don't think that that would create any kind of negative feeling towards him because that doesn't have anything to do with her husband or any other man, you know? So, but anyway, yeah, he was a ginormous baby, but he also, you know, he had to move. He had to watch his, I mean, like, you know, his dad left and his mom moved him to Montana and then he ran away to California to see his dad. He got sent back to Montana, went to California to his dad, then went to, um, from Montana to California and then his dad abandoned him. Well, we'll get to that. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, Ed was kind of a loner, although he was very, uh, I would say superficially um social. And he he never quite fit in mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. And so he 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 withdrew within himself in his fantasies. Right. And I think he talks about like they were constant. Yeah. From a very young age. And well that
2: that was the stimulus that helped him feel something.
1: Yeah, and, other than and if, anger. Yeah, if if we kind of jump ahead just a little bit, it's that um, excitement seeking of like antisocial personality disorder, right? It's that looking for stimulus because they're they're not getting that in the prefrontal cortex, right? And and so what what did he fill his time with? He turned to his own mind. Right, and the idle hands, idle mind, and the idle you hands add are the some, devil's plaything. Yeah. You add you add in some abuse, whether it's coming from other kids, that's giving him this idea of you're a freak because you're taller than everyone. And you would think this the the biggest kid would be the bully. The biggest kid was being bullied.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so he was he was getting um, similar to what gary was getting was that he was just odd all of the time and and so he's moving around he doesn't have that stability and if he if he did you know would things have progressed had in all of the interviews that i've seen he doesn't talk about childhood friends that i've found no, I think his little friends. sister,
2: Alan, was his best friend. Or at least that's yeah, so the they, impression I get, that he was pretty close with Alan. They played yeah, together a lot two, two
1: years apart in age, right? Something mm-hmm. like that.
2: And she didn't and so, think of him as a freak. That's her brother.
1: Yeah, because that's what she knew. That mm-hmm. was normal.
2: Um, if Ed had grown up with both of his parents and he hadn't had to change schools at all, like he followed his peers throughout school, they would get past the size difference. And then perhaps that would not have been an issue. He would not have had that constant reminder every day because, you know, kids get used to their environment pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. They would become habituated to it. But when you're, right. When you're new, being the new kid sucks anyway. You
2: have to start completely over.
1: And reinventing yourself. So what Mm -hmm. worked last time, what didn't work, let me, Let me do that. And if you don't find something that works, you you stop putting effort into it.
2: Right. And I think that he was he didn't have a very good sense of himself at all. I think that when Clarnell would say, you know, you're you're just like your father, you're a freak, you're, you know, all these horrible, mean things that she would say to him. And I think that he was just like, well, that's what I am. And he didn't. Kids that are in that really fertile, loving, accepting environment have this. I'm a big proponent for this, a big fighter for this. If they feel secure in their home environment, then that gives their brain that room to really grow and develop about the world around them. Whereas he just sort of closed himself off. Well, in here is the safest place.
1: Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah there, yep. There's I can't remember. I uh, watched a documentary. But it talks about being a pro social psychopath, mm-hmm. and, um, and it really does come down to the environment
0: because mm-hmm.
1: you have the biological components, you've, you've got all of the genetic components to make that stew, and what's really going to determine whether you learn to be pro social or antisocial is the environment do you have the support love acceptance and, and correction of a loving family right um we can see that the ed did not we can see that the gary did not so it's you know sometimes it gets to the point like when when ed, by the time ed was 15 it was um he he was primed to become what he became mm-hmm.
2: all right well let's move into their teens so some similarities in their teens so we have ed murdered his grandparents and spent the rest of his teens his teens in tafcadero state hospital with other criminals listening to the other criminals talk about sex and just different you know behaviors um gary stabbed a young boy stating that he always wanted to know what it was like to kill someone but he got away with it. So Gary was under the impression that he was going to murder this kid by stabbing him in the like in the liver. I think it hurt the child's liver. Mm-hmm. Um, the child did live, thank goodness. Um, but they both attempted to kill someone in their kind of early teens. So what do you think about that?
1: Yeah. And, uh, my understanding is Gary initially thought that he had killed this kid. Right. Because that was the intent, right? Yes. Um He said he
2: always wanted to know what it was like to kill someone.
1: Yeah. How old was Gary at that time? Was he 12? Was he older than that?
2: He was 16.
1: Oh, wow. Man, I was way off on that.
2: And Ed was 15 when he killed his grandparents. But he was, let's see, he killed his grandparents, I think, in the late summer, early fall. And then he would have turned 16, I think. Ed's birthday is in December. I'm not 100 percent on that. So they were very similar in age.
1: A lot of parallels right there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So it's this also just what's coming going. out of puberty. Yeah. What? So you have all of this um, testosterone that's mm-hmm. flowing, and it comes to a head. Um, I remember being that 15 year old, and um, you know the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed for another 10 years after that mm-hmm. and so you have this impulsivity um, I bet if you were to look at uh, a functional MRI of the brain you would see less um, activity in those areas with the uh, judgment decision making all of those things like the executive functioning you're going to see that with with any teenager but a bet with these guys you're going to see far less and so you had less impulse control you had all of these hormones going on and you had this life of abuse that had culminated to this moment mm-hmm. uh a mod was the first surrogate for edmund and This, I don't even remember the name of the kid that Gary stabbed, but he, that was, he was taking this out, right? So they had moved up from the animals to
2: their first human, this
1: this human. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's crazy to look at the parallels because that you're seeing these two things happening in isolated, um, different circumstances and for different reasons but we see really what it comes down to is is the same act right we're we're seeing this intent to kill
2: the differences in the murders that i just sort of kind of popped into my head too is that again gary did something very personal he used a knife and he stabbed the child that is Face, You know, that is definitely in that child's bubble, whereas Ed shot his mother, you know, a gun is a little more distant. It's one degree away from being so personal, so to speak. You know what I mean? So it's like, Gary, it almost seems more intense, like he wanted to murder this child because he wanted to know what it felt like to murder someone. Whereas Ed was just like, shut up. It was yeah, just-
1: and he just the way Ed described that was she had her back turned to him Mm -hmm. and the gun was in his arm kind of pointed in her direction. And it was kind of the spur of the moment.
2: Yeah. He would grab his gun. He was hollering for his dog to go hunt or whatever. And she had stopped him and that's how she she had expressed her
1: control over him. Right. Whereas Gary, this was premeditated. Right. And, and so this was the entire intent. So we, Yes, the intent was to kill on both uh, in both instances, but the reasons for it and the circumstances are, are it's apples and oranges. Mm-hmm. It's hard to compare the two.
2: Okay, so then let's talk about let's see. So we have in the teens similarities both boys were fantasizing about causing harm to others in their teens. Ed explicitly stated that at 14 years old, he was quote, dreaming, thinking, fantasizing murder all day long. I couldn't get it out of my head. Gary was conflicted with his feelings of both wanting to murder his mother and being sexually attracted to her while in his teens. So, but they were both fantasizing about hurting other people. So I think that that's pretty on par with the childhood of a serial killer. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's this whole, this, again, this, this uh, soup of, of the hormones.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I can't imagine that Ed was not having, uh, he was not just fantasizing about killing or harming. There were, had to be a sexual component to that too. Right. Right. And, it, yes. you know, he's being kind of cagey about, um, some of that stuff because he's he says it's a very shameful for him about, oh, yeah? about some of the um, specific things. yeah, it's, it's in, in that um, that parole hearing he, he didn't want to talk about it then. And so it gets into the specifics of the how he, he felt um, sexually like emotionally impotent and yes. he could not he could not have sex with a live person and so when they're kind of exploring that he just talks about how it's so shameful and embarrassing right to talk about because he's unable to do that
2: so that's so the similarities when it comes to the teenage years are kind of hard to there's not a lot of similarities because again Gary got away with what he did to that little boy i can't remember how old the kid was but He was much younger than Gary, but Ed was in Atascadero, so he was already put away. He was gone. So Gary got to sort of finish his teenage years in, you know, not behind bars or in a facility is what I'm trying to say. So when we get to the differences, so this is where we were talking about the bath situation, right? So Gary's mother would wash his genitals into his early teens. Ed's mother never touched him inappropriately as far as we know. And I feel like Ed would have said so if that were the case.
1: I wonder it makes me wonder if Clarnell was just physically withdrawn from Edmund.
2: Oh, I think like so did, very much. Did she
1: just because she was emotionally for sure, right? Right. Did he ever have physical touch from anybody? It's certainly his mom sent him down to hell because she was yeah, afraid he basement. was going to to rape his sisters.
2: Right. And I don't think that there was anything to indicate that he would have done anything like that, or at least nothing that's been said or found that she was saying that. And he was so confused by that mm-hmm. because the thought had not even occurred to him. And yet he's watching his sister when he talks about it in one of his jail interviews, how um, their bedrooms were upstairs. So they got to go to heaven. The living room kitchen area was earth. And then he was sent down to hell to sleep with the, in the dark and in the cold and all of that that would be, that started when he was eight years old, I think, or something. And that would, that's quite telling. You are so unimportant. You are such a, I don't want to, I'm not, disappointment's not the word I'm looking for, but you are so um, less than desirable in this family or whatever that I'm going to completely separate you. And then I'm going to give you this bullshit line about you're going to touch your sisters it just seems very mm-hmm. uh, she just pulled that out of the air to justify
1: just the exactly. instructions yeah he was treated like if if we think about the titanic right he was treated like steerage right at the very bottom yes sent, sent down there here he is what's going on in his mind like what terrified. are the the boogie monsters or the boogeymen men they're going to get him
2: and she's left him down there to get got to get not got. just
1: left but locked down there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: right. It's like you can't. She's get not out. coming
2: to save him. No. You're you're down there to just go rot. Go get out of my way.
1: Another way that he, again, that his um the people that should have protected and nurtured him did not, Mm-mm. and that he. I wonder where the dog slept. That would be interesting to to know. Was the mm-hmm. dog outside? Did the dog have its own house? Same thing with the cats, right? So, was were the animals treated better than him? That's I a very interesting question. Felt like it. Yeah, they were getting I think so. they were getting the emotional pieces that he wasn't getting for sure, and probably the physical pieces.
2: Maybe that's why he killed the family, buried the family cat alive, or what he whatever he did because his mom showed affection to the cat and not him. I mean, that's certainly plausible.
1: Yeah. And he may not, he may not probably in that moment, wouldn't be able to identify and articulate what was going on.
2: No, it's more reactionary when you're that young. You don't really understand it. You're just reacting to it. Okay. um, Let's see. So Gary's mother washed his genitals up into his early teens. Tell us how that would affect him.
1: Oh my God. Oedipus complex. Everywhere, right? So it's it's right. this um, again. It's, so you're you're having all of these, the puberty going on, the sexual development, and he's he's. I don't know, but I almost guarantee that he probably got physically aroused at some point. And how I could he not
2: without the friction and stuff at that right. age?
1: There there had to be a lot of shameful talk in response to that. Um, which is mm-hmm. then a conditioning, right? So um, you, whatever's happening at the time, whatever's in the environment is going to be a conditioned stimulus to the sexual arousal. So it could be physical pain, shame, whatever's going on. That's And this is where a lot of times like um, paraphilias come from, right? People will... Um, What was it? Jerry Brutus with the the shoes. Right. All of these things are just conditioned stimuli. Right. And, and you take it. And dopamine is such a powerful neurotransmitter. That's why um, like drug addiction is so strong is that we get these dopamine hits from novel experiences and from food and sex and drugs. And, especially if, if you have a decline in that prefrontal cortex, you're going to be seeking that out to a greater degree. And we know that looking at Gary's history it would almost get into this, this obsessive compulsive disorder area, like he would be obsessional and compulsive about having sex multiple times a day Whatever was the the topic du jour, whether it was religion, he was all in and was um, fanatical about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it was he's he's already got kind of that that predisposition genetically to do those things.
2: But another thing too is that not only was she washing his business when he was far too old for her to be doing that. But she was also sunbathing in the backyard. And when she was faced down, she would take her bikini, you know, her bathing suit top off or whatever. And while she wasn't ex- specifically facing up where Gary could see anything, she knew that she was still doing something that left her looking not vulnerable, but, you know, it's still sort of a taboo and a no-no. And she knew that her boys can see that. And back then, especially, I'm not shaming any of that but I'm saying back then especially there was a level of modesty that was expected that she was not displaying in that particular instance yeah, I think that it, that would have messed with them really bad too
1: there was not the access to the media that there is today right and and so that would be uh, it It would have an exponential impact right and seeing that and so it's it's really developing all of these, this unhealthy relationship between sex, shame, violence, Mm -hmm. uh, pain, all of those things are kind of like this stew that is just simmering Mm -hmm. in the background for him.
2: Right. Um, Okay, so we have Ed's relationship with people outside of the home, was strained a bit. Uh, paternal grandmother had a very strong personality. That's Maud that we've talked about. His stepmother, so his father got remarried after a time and Ed had a stepmother and a stepbrother. His stepmother and stepbrother were not that crazy about him. Um, obviously his father, act. you know, I don't think that his father didn't want him around, but I think the stepmother was put off by Ed because of his just personality and how he carried himself. And um, so his extended, you know, as far as cousins and all that goes, I don't know, but I feel like, you know, the people that were in his inner circle outside of the home were not very welcoming or like him very much. there isn't really any information that I found when it comes to Gary and his extended family. So there's not a lot going on there, but because there's no information that can be an indicator that Gary didn't have any issues with cousins or mm-hmm. again, he didn't have any step parents or anything like that. But it did seem like when Ed would go a visiting, people acted like they didn't really want him there.
1: I bet he, uh, and I've noticed in reading that transcript from the parole interview is he and I, I didn't pick up on this in other interviews that I've watched, but he he almost has a um, autism spectrum flavor mm-hmm. to his communication style. I think and so. that He doesn't pick up on some of those verbal cues like he will get so focused on I need to get this out. And or he gets caught up in the, the literalness of the question mm-hmm. um, that I'm wondering if if that communication style caused him to be odd to extended family in addition Probably. to just his tremendous size mm-hmm. so he and he he was incarcerated uh, at age 15 16. Uh, That's a very pivotal time. So he did not get, he didn't, he didn't get to have all of these experiences, normal, quote unquote, experiences that his contemporaries did. So he didn't get to learn how to talk with ladies. He didn't get to, to go to the prom and all of those things. And so Gary
2: did and Gary got those. Gary got those opportunities, and, and I, I can't remember if he went to prom or not. I'm sure he probably did. He did whatever everyone else did that was expected, because that's he was kind of that way, a bit of a follower. But Ed, his teenage years, his coming of age, was spent with very dangerously, well, just very dangerous criminals. Mm-hmm. You know, he he, at 15 and 16 and 17 years old, imagine... Boys at that age who are just coming out of puberty, he's just, you know, becoming a man. If, you know, we're tabling the fact that he killed his grandparents, but, you know, if he's not experiencing the normal peer stuff. And instead, he's hanging out with men of all ages. I mean, you work in a prison. He's hanging out with men of all ages, and they are talking about things that teenagers typically don't talk about. And that's his education. His teenage education is behind bars. He, he
1: went to criminal university.
2: He did. He definitely did. So he sat and listened to I I can't remember if he specifically stated this, but it is said, you know, that he was sitting there talking with, you know, like extremely violent rapists and stuff, talking about how they deal with women and all of that. So I don't know that that affected him later, but I'm just saying that that was his teenage Phoenix moment was behind bars. Gary didn't have that. He was with his peers.
1: And and Evan talks about his inability to connect into, like he he learned to feign it,
0: mm-hmm. like
1: when he's doing this ruse, right? Is, mm-hmm. but it was neither never authentic or natural for him. No. And so he he says, I spent my formidable years in a, a Tascadero, mm-hmm. so I didn't get to have those experiences, which means he didn't get the normal developmental milestones the vast majority of people do get and so again another way that he is an outlier probably reinforces a lot of that those thoughts that uh, cornell was giving him that you're weird you're not okay now I'm about guaranteed that because he was physically large that he was not seen as as young as he actually was. So he was probably perceived by the other prisoners there at Tascadero. So they may even talk to him and interact with him as an adult peer, as opposed to a child still. Right. So be more apt to uh, be exposed to inappropriate things.
2: Right, right. Uh, Okay, so then we have, all right, Ed's time in Atascadero State Hospital with other inmates talking about all manner of things, the psychological tests and everything related to that. Um, So when Ed's in Atascadero, he is, we have to assume, talking to clinicians like you, therapists and whatnot, and and I'm also making assumptions they may have put him on some kind of medication while he was there. Um,
1: Oh, I'm sure, yeah.
2: And because he had found out, he had said in a Atascadero, he realized that his IQ was so high and everything, and it gave him a little boost of confidence. And these doctors, because he works, Ed has always seemed to thrive in these environments where you wake up at the same time. You have breakfast at the, you know, it's all very scheduled and regimented, and he flourished in that kind of environment. And because he was just He seemed rather docile and all of that. And he was so intelligent. The doctors were like, say, listen, you're interested in this. Why don't you help us administer these tests? And then unfortunately, as we know, he learned how to hack the system because he knew what they were looking for. With Gary, uh, we see Gary spent no, uh, no time isolated from society in his mid to late teens. Gary worked after school and weekends during high school at the Kenworth factory. Ed was diagnosed. Okay. Okay, yeah. So anyway, Ed was diagnosed with paranoid psychopathy. I don't think that that's kind of the DSM 5 term for that anymore. Or...
1: I don't even know what that is. I can right. kind of imagine. I Keep in say mind, Ed this ch- was the 60s. Yeah. So we're, we're talking, there's a whole different mindset at that mm-hmm. point. And, um, you know, it's paranoia until it, it's founded. And then it's like, well, oh, you just had good insight at that point.
2: Right. Well, and Ed says that once he shot his grandmother, and I think it was after he'd shot his grandfather as well, that he was he felt like in that moment, I don't remember his exact verbiage, but I, he said in that moment that he felt that everyone in the world had turned and everyone was staring at him. And he said that if he had been in the city or something, he would have just been like a mass shooter or something. So I I can see why they might have thrown the paranoid or the paranoia onto his diagnosis, because he was talking about being very paranoid right after that moment. But what do you think? I mean, you know, let's say he's pre-18, so we can't really give him antisocial personality disorder. So what do you think was going on with Ed, at least in his teens? What would you have given him based on what you know? I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. we weren't there.
1: It's interesting because it's he would probably have some unspecified stuff going on, right? Some nos, not otherwise specified, because it's hard to differentiate whether his feelings of paranoia were were due to you know was he psychotic? He wasn't out of touch with reality Mm -hmm. in general. He he may have had these moments where he may have lost touch with reality, getting in his fantasy, he probably would meet criteria for conduct disorder, right? Which was a prerequisite for antisocial personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think that it's it's too simplistic because there's a lot of stuff going on. If If we take The Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI, which is kind of the uh, industry standard personality inventory. It's like 600 items or something like that. We have different norms that we will score people on according to sometimes their profession, right? So Mm -hmm. first responders, military, uh, paramedics, this type of people will score higher than the general population on adventure seeking because they are that's just the nature of that Mm -hmm. and so given that he has these traumatic experiences I truly believe that when he was eight years old and he was he was terrified going into that basement every night
2: yeah he said he started really having thoughts about killing his mother at eight that he said that really a lot of of this sort of turned on its head 180 when he was about eight years old. And, and that does sort of jive with around the time that she was making him sleep down in hell, as he called it. Mm-hmm.
1: And so it's, you have to take the entire context into account. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what was going on? Obviously he didn't realize he was intelligent. He has an IQ of, I think was tested at
2: 145.
1: 145. 100 is the mean. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, he is there
2: with Einstein almost.
1: Yeah. He's like three standard deviations above the mean, Mm -hmm. um, which is probably in the top two percentile or something like that. Absolutely. And so the fact that that didn't stick out to anyone, that he had this intelligence and his ability to understand, recall, to use working memory. And he demonstrated all of these things later when he memorized the tests, right? And if you listen to him speak, he's very articulate, has a good command of the English language. Yes, he does. But what that tells me is that that was not identified early, so Mm -hmm. he did not excel, right? And so if we look at, like, to identify a learning disability, there has to be a statistically significant difference between intelligence and achievement, so you have to have the ability to do it, but you're underachieving. And you could be underachieving, like somebody has a math learning disability. They may just process numbers differently, right? And so you're going to underachieve on that. I don't imagine that Ed put a lot of effort in. This stuff probably came easy to him, and he spent a lot of time in his head. Well, so, not to mention,
2: I, his mother, I think, was was uh, known for telling i mean i don't know that she specifically told him that he was stupid but i think that she certainly made him feel less than as far as even his you know ability to retain and recall information i think she was pretty belittling about that as well not i mean apparently not realizing that her son was basically beyond gifted i don't know if 145 is in the genius
1: range but if not it's hovering Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm at, 144.5. So, I'm right there.
0: <laughs> no, yeah,
1: I was. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you know, the thing about it is you have higher intelligence like that is, you know, it's it's uh, correlated with our degrees of depression because you have greater right. insight. You see things and you
0: mm-hmm.
1: So, if I. I would say that he probably met criteria for conduct disorder just because he had broken some of these rules, uh, but probably certainly depression. I think he, he was suicidal, but was unable to bring himself around to, to self-harm. Uh, certainly a lot of anxiety, probably some PTSD. Uh, and maybe oh. a, throwing in a little touch of, um, did he have like depression with psychotic features? Did he become out of touch with reality at times with delusions i don't recall him ever saying like endorsing audiovisual hallucinations
0: Mm-mm.
2: i don't think so, so. He, he,
1: if he were out of touch it probably was uh, in a delusional state
2: yeah okay and then with gary coming out of his teens into adulthood um what do you, what do you think was going on with him I don't see any delusions or anything. I think that, I mean, the conduct disorder is, it makes absolute sense, but, you know, to the lay person who's, that's who I represent in this (laughs) scenario, is that he, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't a child that misbehaved per se, but it's still the conduct disorder with the torturing of the animals or killing of animals. And he stabbed that little boy and all of that. So would you think that it's fairly close about it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. He was very covert about some of these things. But, and he that's that's he, I mean, he did the same thing as an adult. He flew under the radar. And that's one of mm-hmm. the things that he prided himself about was that they didn't catch him. And if I think he even talks about this and he has the smug. Uh, demeanor when he's talking with Dave Reichert. About, you know, you you all weren't able to catch me. And I got away with this. He has what forty-eight confirmed, and believe like maybe that. twelve more. It wouldn't surprise me if there's more than that. And oh
2: yeah, they just identified another one recently.
1: I think he he was he was low function low functioning, right? So he was in the lower range in IQ, and he was um, also underachieving, right? Which led to yeah. Mm -hmm. So we would just say kind of lower functioning intellectually as well as uh, academically. And
2: just imagine, imagine how that stroked his ego that they
1: didn't catch him. Yeah. And he was also successful. I mean, he was a good truck painter.
2: Well, I mean, let's think about this. You know, his he's told that he needs to go to a special school. We'll, we'll get to, I have like a section for the IQ stuff, but we do know that he scored in the very low eighties. Um, And so, you know, with all of these things going on, I feel like maybe he definitely got off on the fact that he was getting away with this. Like, I'm not as dumb as my mother said, I'm not as useless as my mother said, look, I got away with this. So yeah. It
1: gave yeah. A sense of agency. Yeah. Right? I can, I can get away with this. I can, um, it's almost like this idea of a reclamation project. He's reclaiming this identity of being intelligent or having at least functional intelligence to be able to, to do these things and get away with it. Mm-hmm. He's, he's.
2: it gave uh, him a sense of pride. Yes. And Even when he, he walked around with his shoulders squared, because he was so good at that.
1: And he was notorious right so if we compare him to btk dennis Mm -hmm. rader is an egomaniacal person he wants that recognition Mm -hmm. gary didn't want the recognition
2: he didn't brag to anyone which was a contributing factor to him not being caught so for so long yeah no one
1: and yeah i think he um he was trying to take back again the power he was trying to establish I do have agency. I am a person. I can do this. See, and I I'm holding, holding the SeaTac area hostage
2: mm-hmm. to
1: fear, and I'm
2: playing God.
1: Yeah, exactly. What's the, what's more powerful than uh, life and death? Having that right. power, it's right. intoxicating. Has to be.
2: Has to be. Yeah. Okay, so when we get to kind of. High school graduation. Let's see, we're getting into okay, we're very young adult now. Ed was again listening to inmates talking about you know violent rapes and all these things and that, which could have been, as a teen, very sexually charging for him. Um, he was considered well after a while. Again, we know through manipulation of the psychologists and the testing and whatnot. And they told him that he should absolutely not have anything to do with his mother. They, they did seem that the doctors at Atascadero did seem to get to the core of the issue and said, yes, it is. Some of this issue definitely has to do with your relationship with your mother and you should absolutely, I don't know if they told him to go zero contact, but they basically told him you don't need to be, he's got, he said, I think his quote is, you know, she got her pound of flesh out of you, leave her alone. Don't go there. And then he was immediately released to her oh, when yeah. he was 21 into her custody. So we have. <laughs> so we have Gary had his first sexual experiences with a girlfriend in late high school and did not have any sexual encounters with women until his early 20s. So um, again, it kind of goes into Gary was able to sort of lead a, a more typical well, obviously, compared to Ed, a very typical high school existence. Whereas Ed didn't get to have that, I and mean, we discussed that. So, while in Atascadero through therapy, Ed did begin to get a sense of himself, and he began to feel better about himself. Gary got no such help in his teens, though his peers did say he went out of his way to be friendly. So, I don't know if you have anything to. Well,
1: I mean, add to it's that. it's functional. Why do why do why are babies cute? because they're completely helpless and they need to be taken care of. It's a mm-hmm. functional thing. You know, if, if he's being extremely friendly, then it's going to endear him. He's he's building goodwill. Maybe not that mm-hmm. he actually, like, intrinsically wants to have those relationships. But no, I think it he, is just, he just
2: thinks this is what I'm supposed to do, so this is
1: what I'm going to do. Yeah, and it's a means to an end.
2: It blends. He's, he's blending. So, Exactly. If you don't know what to do with yourself, blending is the easiest go-to. Okay. Personality traits. There are not a lot of similarities. So I'll go through them, but um, they both had a a hatred and love of their mothers. Uh, Both were very introverted in their youths. So those are the similar personality traits, but the differences are very interesting. So A lot of people talk about the Myers-Briggs personality test, but because people do like the Myers-Briggs, I looked this up. Gary is an ISFJ personality type, which is the protector, ironically, right? The ISFJ personality type is introverted, sensing, feeling, judging. This combination of personality preferences produces people who are energized by working behind the scenes, pragmatic and detail-oriented, deeply committed to supporting others and loyal to relationships and traditions. I kind of agree with this because he was a worker bee. He enjoyed his job. That was very, you know, there is no shame in painting semis. Okay. That is an honorable job like anything else, but you know, it's like something that wasn't so complicated that he could be really good at that detail oriented. I think that he was very much loyal in his relationships and traditions. So when I say loyal in relationships, obviously he was during his campaign of terror, not being loyal to his wife. Cause even if his victim was alive or dead, it's still putting things where they don't belong when you're married to someone else. But as far as the loyalty and all of that is that he very much was in love with the idea of being married and having this home life and, and, sort of painting this picture for the world to see, because he thought that's what he was supposed to do. So what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I see how this fits for him. And I'm wondering if he had a warped sense of morality about having sex with these um, sex workers, because he saw them as objects.
2: Yeah, they were less than humans, so.
1: Because Rader had this same thing. He's like, oh, I never didn't cheat on my wife because I never had sex with these people but you killed them right but he he was and and there's there's guys that I see every day at the prison who will say yeah I, I killed these people but I did not rape anybody don't call me a rapist right and it's it's kind of this in their mind they're making this distinction Yeah, well, it's just
2: like Ed. I accidentally brushed her breast and I was mortified, uh, but then I killed her, you know, 10 minutes later.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, and the mortification probably came as a result because she was still breathing. Like, Mm -hmm. had she been dead? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah.
2: No. Okay, so Ed, in my research, came up as an INTP personality type. So that's the logician or logic. The INTP is someone with the introverted, intuitive thinking and prospecting personality traits. These flexible thinkers enjoy taking an unconventional approach to many aspects of life. They often seek out unlikely paths, mixing willingness to experiment with personal creativity. And I I think I can kind of jive with this too, definitely unconventional approach. Um, Seeking unlikely paths, mixing willingness to experiment with personal creativity. Ed's actually a very creative fella. You know, I don't know that he was really given the opportunity to show his creativity when he was coming up, you know, as a child and all that. But I know once he was in prison that he used to make like little coffee mugs. He did ceramics and different things, and they were very intricately and detailed, painted. Um, So I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: I I think it's spot on. Um, Yeah. As as much weight as you want to put into that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when you, when you read that, I mean, it fits for him. Yeah. His entire path has been unlikely. Like, is, is there anything about his life that has been kind of the traditional path?
2: Well, my, so. my, one of my favorite words when it comes to Ed is anomaly. Mm-hmm. He's an in anomaly in a lot of ways. Yeah. Okay, so then we have uh, personality trait differences. Gary conducted himself with extreme control and secrecy. As much as he loved murdering these women, he never told a soul. We touched on that. Ed murdered, but did take some victims home afterward for further sexual activities. He brought a severed head of one of his victims back to his own apartment. And Ed has talked about that and saying that there was, he did sort of, would you call, just have like a a break in reality because he said that, you know, he's living in his head. So he has this world in his head going on and he's walking up these steps. I can't remember if this was when he, a very brief time he had his own apartment or if he had again moved back in with his mother, but that he had had a head and like, I think a bowling bag or some kind of bag. And he's walking up the stairs to go into his apartment and he passes a couple going out for date night. And he said that, when they crossed paths and he told them good evening that there was you know an almost snapping point in that moment because it was the real world colliding yeah. with his fantasy world in that exact moment
1: yeah he so was, what do you think about that he, he was probably in this this fantasy world which he developed at a very young age was a, a way for him to escape mm-hmm. the reality because reality sucked
0: mm-hmm.
1: in, in a lot of cases and uh, from a neurotransmitter perspective that was this where he was able to get that dopamine it was a safe place for him and it's almost like um
2: it's almost like that couple intruded on that but he yeah. wasn't angry about it it was just it pulled him out of that enough for him to go oh whoa for just a second and,
1: and i think he he this is the couple he he says that should have been me I should have been going on a date. Right. And, Instead of so a head and a
3: bag.
1: Yeah. And so it's like, uh, I'd go to this. And so it's probably this internal world is a way for him to cope with the insanity, if we want to use that that legal term here, of like the disparity between this fantasy world and the reality world in which he lives in. Where in that fantasy world, having a head in a bowling bag makes sense. It it works within those confines.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In the real world, which is when he see, sees these people, because he wasn't planning to see anyone. Right. And that, the, what they represented was kind of like jumping into a cold pool. It, right. it it's brought a very big,
2: sobering. Reality check. Yes. And he was lost in his mind. He was, you know, we, well, I can't say we all, but I know that, you know, if I'm deep in thought and I'm really, you know, lost in whatever I'm thinking about or whatever, and then, you know, reality, you know, say someone in my household comes in and interrupts me, there is that moment where you're just sort of confused and lost for a second, you know, until you realize. So for him, I guess that would be to the nth degree, huh?
1: Oh, yeah. And it was, um it it was probably all part of this fantasy right so he was acting out the fantasy Mm -hmm. we all know that the nothing lives up to that fantasy so it all falls short and that's why a lot of these guys continue doing it over and over because they're chasing this thing this perfection that will never exist
2: well and they're also chasing that first high
1: yeah and and it's never it's never the same
2: no OK, let's see. Um, Ed, while binding a victim, we already went through that, accidentally touched her breast and was mortified. He apologized to her before he murdered her. Gary did not have any such hesitancy.
1: None. Um, it's, so we see more of like them. it's like a switch. I, th- I think one of the women who survived Ridgeway talked about how his eyes got very black. Mm-hmm. right, and it, So his pupils dilated. He turned into a different person.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: this animalistic thing. And he was extremely strong for his size. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he he had um he followed through. That's for sure.
2: Right. Whereas with Ed, you know, if he offered a ride to a a, a young lady and she said, Have you heard about the murders going on around here mm-hmm. in Santa Cruz? He said, I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. Oh yeah. So talking about it. So that's why I joke around that I would have survived dead. People are like, you know, you shouldn't have a favorite. He's not a favorite in a positive way, but he's my top shelf as far as psychologically interesting and all of that to me. And he would not have killed me because first and foremost, I had never hitchhiked. But if I had, I would have got in and been like, dude, have you heard? That'd have been the first thing out of my mouth. And he'd have been like, okay, she's fine. She's not going to, he wouldn't have killed me. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, the, so if you hitchhike, always talk about serial killers. Always. So what's the chances of two serial killers being in the same vehicle?
2: Okay, so then I came, you know, I said this thing where you know when you when you watch the interviews with Gary, specifically the one where he's in his little orange red, you know, scrubs or whatever, he tells a story. He will talk back to you, um, okay. I, the FBI agent or whoever it was that was interviewing him, the the woman that was interviewing him. The questions were super leading. She was basically leading him to exactly what they wanted to hear. So I don't even like those interviews very much because I feel like it reminded me of when Ted Bundy spoke with the James pastor stops. or whatever, yeah, right before the day of yeah. his execution. It's like it was all pornography, wasn't it? Now, come on, agree with me, agree with yeah, me. Yeah. And I feel like that lady was doing that to Gary. With Ed, he'll speak freely about any of it, he has no qualms about doing that. So I, I kind of thought of this catch phase where Gary tells a story, but Ed paints a picture.
1: I think that's perfect description. It's just terse. When when Gary is just he's he's like he he looked, to me he looks like a rat. I don't know if it's the eyes or the mustache or nose or whatever it is, but I I see him kind of engaged in his own thing. He's eating his piece of cheese and then has to respond. Blah, blah, blah. And then he goes back to doing that. Mm-hmm. Whereas you just give Edmund, and that's what they said when they arrested him. Like he didn't shut up the entire time. All the way back from Colorado, he was talking and talking and talking.
2: Imagine having an, a captive audience after all those years. Oh my God. Hanging on every word you said. Wasn't that Whereas, what Cornell
1: said? I suppose you're going to want to stay up and talk on that.
2: Yeah, that was the last thing that she ever that was the last exchange they ever had well i suppose you're gonna want to stay up all night talking now and he was like nope and turned around went back to his room and that was it that was the decision he knew he he knew yep
1: and she went out to a party she got
0: soused she came home went to sleep i was woken up by that i got came out i walked up to her bed she's laying there reading a paperback as many thousands of nights before and she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. And I looked at her I said, no. I said, good night. Yeah. And I knew I was going to kill her. You know? And I am so cold, it's so hard. And that's the first time in 10 years I've looked at it that way
2: and he actually cried in one of the interviews he like broke oh, yeah. down it didn't didn't seem fake to me or put on for
1: no no show at
2: all. all that's the only time i've really seen him like like that okay so i really did want to compare and contrast the iqs um you and i both know in in our studies that iqs are kind of a a different thing too but most people the 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 idea behind IQ tests and what that number is and and where you stand as far as average and all that people still hang on to that. I've actually read articles where they say, we just keep talking about it because everyone is just so used to it. It's just common language now. So I do want to talk about their differences. So I looked up, I was like, okay, well, what are we talking about comparing and contrasting IQ? So according to Mensa International, IQ or intelligence quotient is a type of standard score that indicates how far above or how far below his or her peer group an individual stands in mental ability. An IQ test is supposed to gauge how well someone can use information and logic to answer questions or make predictions. A score of 100 is average. Greater than 130 indicates being gifted. Anything below 70 indicates developmental or learning disabilities. So Gary had an IQ in the lower 80s is how it is always worded. I think I may have seen 82 somewhere, definitely in the low 80s. So he's considered lower average or around 15% of the population. Above the threshold for normal independent functioning. Can perform explicit routine hands-on tasks without supervision as long as there are no moments of choice and it is always clear what has to be done. So assembler or food service. This is also the IQ range most associated with violence, I found. Most violent crime is committed by males in that range. This does not imply that all males in this range are violent. I always have to try to give my disclaimers there because I'm not trying to offend anyone. Um, nor that all violent males are in this range. But when the mo- mo- modal IQ of a group is in this range, one may expect trouble with many male members of that group. Yep. So with Ed, Ed's IQ was tested at 145. This is considered highly gifted or 0.13% of the population. So less than 1%, which is wow. crazy to me. People with an IQ of 145 are normally exceptionally smart and skilled, and they frequently have some amazing skills and gifts, particularly in specialized fields. These people are extremely gifted, which may be shown even at an early age, but of course we wouldn't know that because Ed was not really encouraged. Um, they have a wide range of interests and frequently excel in a variety of areas. They can become world-renowned discoverers and artists and achieve things that benefit mankind as a whole. So what say you about the difference in the IQ, which is so, big, but what does that even mean?
1: Yeah, so that's, um, we could have a whole Episode talking about.
2: We could do tests. a true crime science episode about this. Yeah. Let us so know.
1: The um, basically, when you see the IQ number, it's the FSIQ, which is the full scale IQ, and it's an amalgamation of all of these different subtests that are testing. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It's been a long time since I've administered one of these, but it's like um, working memory, uh, reasoning, recall. Um, like analogies,
2: Hmm.
1: blank is to blank as blank is to blank, right? And so.
2: Oh, I took one of the old school IQ tests when I was younger.
1: Yeah. So I've had my tested and I'm, uh, I'm in the high average. So I'm between the mean and one standard deviation. So this gives a snapshot of how well this person performed on these specific tasks in this, on this day under these conditions. Mm-hmm. What what it doesn't give is a functional component, right? And that's why you would also, you wouldn't just take and administer the waste for, and it's, it's not really going to give you a snapshot of anything. So you want to get some collateral data from other sources. How well do they function, right? Because Gary's is, I mean, there's a tremendously a statistically significant difference between the lower 80s and 145. Oh yeah, huge. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 on a different type of scale, right? So it's not like um, it's not like at the ratio level where you have an absolute zero and those type of things. What it's measuring is how well this person performed on this. Uh, I can never take an IQ test, like they can never measure my IQ again. Because and they can't measure Edmonds because he has been he's had the information. This I could score probably in the genius range right now because I know the answers. Oh, yeah. Now, there are that's some true. things that I can't do. Like there are performance-based tasks that I would score just within my range, because that's it's like the blocks. You you make the the pictures, Patterns. right, with the yeah. blocks, um, and the working memory being able to hold information in your head and be able to manipulate it and reason with it, um, and be able to recall it. You know, number sequencing, forwards and backwards, those type of things. What what we see is people who have early experiences and exposure to reading and culture and those type of things score higher on this
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and so that's there's this whole argument about um you know these tests being racially biased or economically mm-hmm. biased because of the way that they're testing some of this stuff because it's not um it's just not performance based like objective there's the subjectivity in the way that the questions are chosen those type of things Mm -hmm. what it's not looking at is aptitude like gary probably has uh specific aptitudes where he is very skilled more so than ed he can gary can probably paint a truck much better than ed can
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right because this is an aptitude what we see here is gary got away with this for a long time the science caught up with him had had to beg for somebody to believe that he had killed these people
2: he literally had to call from a payphone in colorado the santa cruz police department and tell them um go to my apartment i've murdered my mother and her friend no you didn't yeah i i actually did
1: yeah oh are you sure quick clowning
2: yeah ed come on Okay. So then we can compare and contrast everyday lives apart from murder. So when we're talking about them, they have nothing to do with murder. So Ed stated that four months after being released from Atascadero, the dark fantasies began again. And though Gary didn't specifically state this, I felt like it was reasonable to assume that Gary was quite distracted with thoughts and fantasies as well. But specifically that Ed said that four months after being out of Gatascadero. So it almost makes me think, and again, I could be totally wrong, but it makes me think that, you know, what do you think in your professional opinion that Ed would have been medicated in a Tascadero as a teenager, if they would have given him something?
1: Most likely they would have given him. Well, and I, I think this is where his size probably plays a couple of factors. One Um, his tolerance is probably going to be larger because he has more mass. Right. So he may be started at a a dosage for his age. That's probably not as effective. Mm -hmm. Um, And two, because he was so large, he may have been given medications they may not have needed for uh, chemical restraint to calm him down.
2: Right. Just to keep him
1: docile. Even though he was docile. Right. Right. It, It was great in a structured environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, He would never survive on the outside. He needs that.
2: Yeah, he does. He really does. Well, it just makes me think that when he specifically states four months after getting out of a a Tascadero, he's back in the fantasy bag. I think that's almost verbatim what he said. So it makes me think one, he hadn't been around his mother that whole time and he'd been in therapy. And so, you know, he had a better sense of things when he got out of course him going right back to his mother and maybe things were okay at first, but you know, old habits die hard. And, you know, she was very quick to remind him that, you know, my son is a murderer and you know, you've, you've made, I think she specifically told him once that she wasn't going to get laid because she was the mother of a murderer or something like that. Like that's some you know, you don't talk about that with your kids, but anyway, what, what stands out to me is that, do you think that perhaps he had been on some medication and then he got off of it, and that certainly exacerbated things after four oh, yeah. months? Especially I,
1: depending on what he was on. So he, if he, he was have, on if he was on something. So we're speculating. Yeah. Um, if if he were on an antipsychotic, and probably back in those days, it would have been first generation, like Thorazine. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. That, he was let out in 1971, I think it was.
1: Yeah. So he would have been on. Probably some old school stuff. Um, and it makes you pretty flat, meaning that if you have any type of creativity, it, it's going to blunt all of that. Right? And he and was makes,
2: already fairly flat you, anyway.
1: Yes. And so he he may have come off of that. Maybe he didn't feel like he was himself on it. Maybe he didn't like the side effects because it can cause some like gyne- gynecomastics male breasts can't mm-hmm. think of the word gynecomastia i think is the word yeah um there's a lot of bad side effects especially in those those older ones you can get uh what's called extra pyramidal side effects uh tardive dyskinesia those two, like some motor movement things that can be permanent um and so
2: and you that could have come what off they of call bull bar effect or whatever where you burst yeah. out laughing or crying
1: yeah and he, team, he said he, he has that since the stroke
2: yeah he, in the 2017 parole hearing records which i will put in the notes I'll, I'll put a link in the notes so people can read them but yeah he specifically states that he has that since his stroke but not right when he got out of a tascadero um
1: and and if he was on something and and was released i mean what better way to kind of establish your own sense of self and agency and to decide I'm not going to take this because I'm better. Yeah, I I needed that then. I I don't need it now. See, I'm not even having the, the fantasies are not, they're at bay, at least for the time being.
2: Right, right. Okay. And then we have for similarities, everyday lives apart from murder, both were still quite dependent on their mothers. Gary, throughout his adult life, would seek out assistance from his mother to help him with things as simple as balancing his checkbook or his bank account, general life assistance. Whereas with Ed, was only living independently for a short time after Atascadero, but was dependent on his mother and did live with her. He was forced to move back in with her. I think he was released to her and then he had his own place for a short amount of time and then he had to live with her. So both were still quite dependent on their mothers. So I I guess that gets back to the whole, I hated her, but I wanted to love her.
1: Well, and it it could be, this is where the functional pieces, right? So if we look at it, activities of daily living, living independently, um, they both had deficits, but maybe for different reasons. Maybe Gary's was due to intellectual disability or low IQ, Whereas um, Edmonds was from Arrested Development. He never I, got those skills.
2: I 100% agree with you on that. Absolutely. Completely. He was never, you know, Ed was, had also kind of a, it's not weaponized incompetence, but it's like his mother, I don't know, maybe he just went back to the familiarity of you know, well, my mom treats me like this, that, and the other, but if I'm with her, then I'm taken care of. Like, you know, she makes sure the rent is paid. She makes sure, you know, she takes care of everything and all he has to do is work, I guess, maybe contribute or something, but that there's like a a familiar helplessness. Is that what
1: I'm looking Mm -hmm. for? Like learned helplessness. Yeah. It's that, yeah, it's falling back into that role.
2: Um, let's see. Okay. So differences, we have a lot of differences. Um, so differences, Gary married, had a semi-normal relationship with women, at least on the surface. He very much enjoyed being married. I know that when one of the wives divorced him, he went to like a singles Christian type thing to try to meet other divorcees. Um, Once Ed was released, he had a hard time being able to connect with and date women. He did. He actually had a fiance for a short amount of time. Um, Her name is out there, but I don't, you know, leave her alone. She didn't know. Ed took classes at a local community college. and was pretty successful at being a student. Gary got no education beyond barely graduating high school. Uh, Gary stuck with his career working at the Kenworth factory for the rest of his free life. So we see that you know he started this job in high school, he continued with the job after high school, he was good at it, he was well-respected in his field. People really liked him, he was a hard worker, so there's some praise and some positivity there that he's clearly not going to give up because he didn't really have that growing up, so he just stuck with that. Plus, painting trucks, I don't want to say that it's not complicated. I'm sure that there's a lot to it that someone like me who has never painted an automobile There's a lot to it, but it's the same thing every day. Once you learn it, that's it. Yep. You know, he could just go into robotic mode and just do it. And it doesn't take a lot of, you know, mental energy to do that sort of thing. Let's see what little time Ed was out. He was told he was too big to be a police officer. So he did have that rejection. He wanted to go into law enforcement, which we do see a pattern of that military or law enforcement with serial killers. I do think that. You know, I don't really know Ed's motives behind wanting to join the police force and lotioning up the tattoo, but perhaps maybe he was starting to feel things and that he wanted to be a policeman to help combat that. so what do you think about that?
1: It it could like what did it represent? Right. It could represent order. And and he's he knows that he needs structure and order. Mm -hmm. um, As opposed to the chaos and right. left his own devices is chaos because he just doesn't know how to do that he wasn't he wasn't equipped with those skills and so and there's a camaraderie
2: bad. with with um yes. officers
1: and that it, he never you know, had he he likely when he was at a Tascadero aligned himself with the staff
2: he absolutely so did
1: so that's the same thing and we see that parallel with with the police you know Mm -hmm. he he hung out at the bar would drink beer with them uh, for different reasons when he was actively killing people it was to uh, basically stay in the know and help interfere uh yeah he said a pleasant nuisance or something
2: friendly nuisance
1: yeah friendly nuisance
2: he had watched enough true crime television or um, I forgot the name of the television show. Perry Macy. Is that it? I can't remember, but Perry Mason. Perry Mason, maybe. Um, but he watched old detective cop shows and stuff, and that they had taught him don't, you know, there was a lot of serial killers, some serial killers do go back, they want to go to the funeral or they want to be part of, mm-hmm. you know, seeing that kind of thing, and that Ed had that same urge, but that he had learned from these old detective shows that most likely, the people that have done the murder are there in the crowd. So he stayed away because he knew that they would be looking in the crowd.
1: So he had some some sense of impulse control.
2: Yes, for that he did. Well, and probably
1: did. to a great degree, right? If if someone changed the script on him and start talking about this or whatever, then that would they didn't fit into the fantasy, so to speak. Mm-hmm
2: right um let's see gary did stick with his career working at the kenworth factory the rest of his free life so gary was uh seemed to indulge in extremes so sex religion and then the fetish with having sex outside aside from the murders ed didn't really appear to indulge in many extremes or any of that i you know that seemed to stand out to me
1: mm-hmm. no, I've, as I've far i've seen that either I think that's a big difference in their their personalities. Uh, it,
2: like Gary, the Gary would sit and watch TV and he'd yeah. have he'd be sitting in his chair watching TV, eating his dinner with a Bible in his lap open. Yep. Or if he was taking a break at work, he would, you know, snack on his lunch and read the Bible. So it was definitely extremes. It didn't yeah. really seem to show any extremes. It's it almost feels like that when he got out of a Tascadero outside of working for the highway department, and I, it seems like I know that he was doing this. I can't I can't remember when I'm not. This is why I write everything out. But um, he just did. You know, it almost seems like he was just kind of floating. You know, he didn't really know what to do with himself. as Gary's like, well, I have this job at Kenworth, and I'm pretty good at it, so that's what I'm going to stick with. And it's just the same every day, the same thing. Mm-hmm. And with that, it wasn't.
1: And that fits with his Myers Briggs.
2: That's very true. That's very true. Yeah. That's very true. So Gary joined the Navy after high school. Ed was never in the military, but Ed did it, want to become it probably, a
1: policeman. Yeah, Ed probably would have done well.
2: And one would think that maybe he would have pursued that because that's what his father did, mm-hmm. and his and his father before him. We talk about how I've I've talked about this a million times about like the warrior gene MAOA blah blah blah, um, things inherited through the X chromosome or through the mother. Clarnell had a brother who was in the Air Force or something, and he flew a plane so low to a bus full of people that I think he actually almost clipped the bus or something, and that the actual President of the United States at that time. Uh, was asked about that and and was, and he said something about that the brother had been discharged for that behavior or whatever. So we're seeing some daredevil behavior in Mm, Clarnell's brother. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And disregard for the rights of others.
2: Yep. And authority. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. little tidbit of information. Not everybody knows.
1: I so, yeah, Carnell something. had
2: a brother that was Henri. Gary was drawn to voyeuristic sexual activities outside. Ed preferred solitude and secrecy.
1: It's interesting because I think it was this heightened um Gary almost always wanted to have sex outside.
2: Outside. Uh,
1: with the sex workers as well as with his romantic partners.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So was it this... It, it makes me wonder how much impact or if this was related to his his mother's exhibitionistic tendencies.
2: I, that's exactly what popped into my head. So I feel like if it's not a huge influence, it's at least a part of it. Because there was something very sexual about a woman outside.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, for a child, that's an easy connection.
1: When it could also be, I mean, if we we look from a neuroscience trend a standpoint, like the amygdala was... It's one of our favorite parts of the brain, right? It mm-hmm. um, it's interesting because there you have a part in your brain called the um, thalamus, and it's like a switchboard, and all of your sensory information goes through that, and then it's sent out to all of the different uh, lobes of the brain, and except for olfaction, so smelling goes directly to the amygdala, which then encodes long-term memories and emotions and some other things Um, and that's why smells can be so strong Mm -hmm. so you smell something it can bring back memories Uh, we see a lot of times people who have um, a history of trauma especially in combat Uh, certain smells may trigger them panic attacks um, and so I'm wondering, was that part of it? Because he may may have had uh, like these specific outdoor smells mm-hmm. that were also conditioned to be um, a stimulus for sexual arousal.
2: It's not out of the realm of possibility. Perhaps so. Perhaps so. And um, you know, so like Ed specifically wanted to have sex outside. I mean, not Ed, Gary specifically wanted to have sex outside. Ed um, would unfortunately have to murder most, if not all of his victims outside of the home. But it was all about, you know, incognito to get them in the house so that he could then relax and have, Mm -hmm. you know, do his compulsions or whatever, you know. So I just thought that was interesting. And then we have Gary was said to faithfully read the Bible daily. There really isn't much evidence of Ed being religious at all that I've heard.
1: No, I haven't heard anything about that.
2: Mm-mm. So methods of killing teens and adults. So the similarities are both wanted to murder, stating they wanted to know what it was like. Both used vehicles to drive up to victims and lure them into the vehicle. Both presented themselves as perfectly harmless. So Ed feigned a disinterest, you know, checking his watch, like, well, you know, I didn't really want to stop, but I've made time for you. Um, he acted slightly inconvenient. Uh, He used his mother's job at the university and thus him having that university parking sticker as part of looking harmless because the news had said, don't take, don't be hitching rides with people that are not associated with the college. But he had a sticker on his car because his mom worked at the college. So that gave him another degree of being able to hide. Um, Gary used a photo of his small son in his wallet to also earn the trust of his victims. Uh, both went out of their way to look non-threatening. Gary even brought his small son with him at least once, and lo- most likely more than once. The son did not witness any of the murders and was too young to understand that the women were sex workers, although Gary did say that if his son had witnessed anything, he would have killed his own son. Yep. Uh, both disposed of their victims outside in the wilderness and both had sex with the remains, sometimes several times before disposing of the bodies interesting parallel it is an interesting parallel because it's like there's so many differences and then that sort of brings it right back home
1: a lot of necrophilia right mm-hmm. and it, i think it's it doesn't with, judge right it can't say no right well i think what with gary
2: that the difference might be and this is just in my own head i feel like with gary and ed the difference is that gary also had like a sex addiction. Right. So like he was super hypersexual. Um, the wives I think had talked about how he wanted to have sex multiple times a day. So just, you know, nympho, I I don't know if that's like a genderless term, but definitely had sort of an addiction to that. Um, whereas with, um, Ed, it's more like while they're here, They're not ripe yet. I might as well go ahead and continue to enjoy. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like Ed has that kind of personal, intimate alone time, the solitude with the body so that he can do to it whatever he wants, whether even if he just wants to, like Jeffrey would just sit and like, Dennis Nielsen even would just sit and pet the bodies, you know, just touch them and caress them. And, and I don't know that Ed was doing that so much, but I know that he was toying with the body some, but I feel like it's more of a, I've got them to myself. I had to unfortunately kill them because with Ed, it, the death was not, the, the killing was the means to the end because he wanted the end result. With Gary, it was definitely the murder. And then he just wanted to quench his sexual appetite. So he would just continue to, visit the bodies and violate the bodies, I think to quench a thirst, so to speak, to scratch an itch. Whereas with Ed, he had the bodies, he had that personal intimate time with them. And then once they got to a point, he's like,
1: okay, you gotta go. Yep, exactly. Man, great. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so while they both have very similar ways of, of, of messing with the bodies and disposing of the bodies and all that kind of stuff, I think again, it gets down to, People get stuck on, well, they both killed these women and they both, you know, but there's subtle differences that I think mm-hmm. the, the big part of the public miss um, or don't think about. It's not really missing. They don't think about. Okay, so differences. Gary did not, as far as I found, Gary did not dismember his victims when he left the remains outside. Ed dismembered his victims and even buried one head face up towards his mother's bedroom window because she, quote, liked to be looked
1: up to. But they like a big if you to her.
2: Yeah, that was just a huge skull of a middle finger. Um whereas Gary didn't dismember his victims because it, it wasn't about like with Ed, it was like I've got this time. It just seems like, you know, he's just going to take advantage of the whole situation, but it's still very personal and very solitary. Whereas with Gary, it's like oh, I'm gonna kill you because I hate women or whatever, and I'm still gonna continue to punish you and my mom and
1: thinking of uh her. I just wanted her to stop and, um, uh, let me, let me alone. Um, I uh, angry at, uh, her for, uh, pushing and pushing and pushing on me to, to remember and I just couldn't remember. And I just wanted her to stop. Uh, but she didn't.
2: But She didn't know. You know that kind of thing.
1: like yeah, the aggression uh, was was a big part of it for Gary. Yeah,
2: and like I don't really think that it was
1: act violence.
2: Yeah, and with Ed, it was more like he didn't want to kill them. He just needed the end result. I don't know that he didn't want to kill them, but he certainly didn't enjoy that part of it. He said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um let's see so differences let's see gary would continue to revisit his decomposing victims for possible additional sexual encounters once ed dumped the bodies he was done pretty big difference. as far as i know yeah big difference there um gary used strangula- strangulation as his method of killing ed mostly used a knife or a gun but he did i think strangle at least one
1: yeah that's congruent with my understanding
2: yeah so again, strangulation is very personal. Whether he strangled them from behind or in the front, you're putting your bare hands on someone's bare flesh and you are in total and complete control whereas if he use a knife or a gun, there's there's even though we know there's not, it it that in in Ed's mind it's a degree of separation. Yep.
1: Yeah, there's distance.
2: Yeah, there's distance. Um, Let's see, Gary was meticulous with regards to the crime scene. He was careful to cover any tire marks. He used old cigarette butts even though he didn't smoke to throw off um, the authorities. Ed simply discarded his victim's remains. He didn't really give any thought to staging things. He just sort of threw it out, whereas Gary did stage. So Ed did not like the actual murder portion of the event. He stated several times that he thought of the girls, the thought of the girls' suffering was mortifying. It was the end result and possession of the remains that he was after. Gary actually thrilled at the strangulation and the end of the li- ending the life of his victims. And then another big glaring difference: Gary's official body count is forty-eight. It is believed he could have killed up to twelve more. Ed's body count is ten. Gary isn't fully forthcoming about all of his victims. Ed has always maintained that there were no more. He seems pretty open and honest about who his victims were. and all.
1: I think Ed has remorse. And um, as a matter of fact, it, he, he came to the, the understanding, of like, if m- my mother doesn't die, these girls are going to continue to die. Because mm-hmm. it's the only way it's going to stop.
2: So, Gary's killing spree lasted at least 20 years. Ed was only out of custody for four years between a Tascadero and prison. Mm-hmm. Gary took a more career approach to being a serial killer, and Gary did not murder his mother. The big difference is that Gary did not kill his mother, Ed did.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Do you think that if Gary had killed his mother, which I'm not advocating, I'm not saying, I'm not, but if he had, do you think he would have stopped like ed i don't think so
1: i think he i think his sexual compulsion was way too high because yes. i imagine i don't know this to be the case but i imagine he would gary probably would pick up multiple sex workers same night kill at least one of them have sex with maybe one or two more and then go have sex with the remains like his sexual compulsion was that that mm-hmm. high and i don't i think it it was so reinforcing for him on a lot of levels like he was getting secondary and tertiary gains by having the secret by being able to do this and not get caught he's smarter than everybody else he has a sense of agency at that point he it was his mother was just one of the women whereas um Ed's mother was the woman. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like different factors. He, he wouldn't have stopped. He, no. I, I don't think he would have stopped ever until he got too old to do it.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Okay. Um, some of the similarities that I have on this list for adults as relationships, as adults and family acquaintances are kind of the same. But some of the differences I want to touch on, which is that Ed was never married. He was very briefly engaged. Gary was married three times. Mm-hmm. But in the same breath, you can't really, that's kind of a, a difference that doesn't really count because again, Ed was only free for four years of his adult life. Gary was free the whole time. Ed never had any children. Gary had one son. Again, that's kind of whatever. Acquaintances of Gary said that he was not a loner. Ed was for the most part a loner. There are pictures of him. I've seen at least one picture of him where he's got his, like, there's a girl on each arm kind of thing. And of course, he's way taller than them and he's kind of smiling. This is after Tascadero, but long before the murders. So, but then again, one of them could have been his sister. I didn't look super close, but for the most part, Ed was not super outgoing and social, but acquaintances of gary's did specifically say he didn't seem like a loner
1: yeah he was secretive i'm sure yeah very reminiscent to to btk in that in that mm-hmm. regard like true double lives
2: yeah okay so now we're getting to how they were caught similarities there's only really one hmm. if ed had not killed his mother he would he could have continued on for an indeterminate amount of time Gary was able to get away with being a serial killer for 16 to 19 years. So both of them were successful serial killers. And I feel, it's just my opinion, of course, that if Ed had not stopped after his mother, if he had not killed his mother and he hadn't stopped, that he could have been as prolific as Gary Ridgway.
1: Oh, certainly. Because, he I mean, he had to beg and convince cops to come pick him up.
2: With his own murdered mother in the apartment.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this shows how the familiarity, that the relationship you have with those officers, because he was convinced they were going to be there to, to basically have a shootout and kill him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and nobody said he didn't hear anything on the radio. So none of the stuff that he expected. He's like, he just ran out of steam. He was exhausted. Because he, yeah. I don't know many hours it was a long time Mm -hmm. and he just ran out of steam
2: yep well and he and he says and i don't know how we have we it is important to remember when we study these people that what they tell us you can't always necessarily take it face value so he said to us that mom had to die or more girls were going to die so he killed his mother he understood that she was the the base problem, the foundation of the problem. He killed her. The thing is, is that, so do you think if he hadn't turned himself in after he killed his mom, he would have continued to kill? Or do you think once mom was dead, and we're not talking about her friend, because I, again, I think that was just a bonus because he knew he was getting ready to pitch. You know, he killed his mom. There's no, you're done, you know. Do you think that he would have kept killing even after he killed his mom if he hadn't turned himself in. He says he wouldn't have, but I want to know well, your opinion.
1: I I guess the thing is like so if he if he had killed her but had gotten away with it. And right. not been incarcerated in any way, would he have stopped? I tend to think he he probably would have. I I want to, and I know this is me being subjective, but I want to think that he wouldn't. I want to believe him. And so I know that I'm not objective with this. What do you think?
2: So part of my fascination with Ed, as the audience knows, is that I, there's a level of, there's a a small, but there's a a level that I identify with him when it comes to uh, mommy issues. And there's a part of me that does want to believe or I feel somewhat strongly, not super confident, but somewhat strongly that he wouldn't have after his mom because he he specifically talked about how she would just push his button. She knew exactly what to say to upset him the most, which I understand that. So he would just she would just poke and poke and poke and then he would go to murder because it was like he would get so angry that he would go kill. If she wasn't poking him, if she wasn't there to just re-traumatize him like she had his entire life, that that wouldn't have been there. If he could have gotten away with killing her, and no one knew that he had done it, there's a part of me that does lean that he might not have gone on to kill anyone
1: else. Yeah, because in a way, I think this is very similar to the idea of Dexter, right? Mm -hmm. Take out the. The bad person, not to victim blame with Clarnell, but absolutely in his, not. In his mind, this is the source. Mm-hmm. And so, how can I, if I remove that source? I think it's it's interesting to kind of play with that notion, but it's also important to remember that not all things would be held equal. Mm-hmm. Now, here's here's the question had he killed his mother initially other than his grandmother would that have changed anything
2: i mean it's it's a good question it's a good question as a matter of fact everyone listening or watching let us know what you think in the comments but it's it's a very interesting question indeed there's a part of me that really wants to believe that he would not have because she was the source um because again, he was very careful to talk about how he did not enjoy the murder part of it, but he enjoyed having the the body afterwards, I guess. So then, then the, you kind of almost tip into a situation where, well, I mean, I guess it does kind of go back, go full circle to Clarnell though, because he would have sex with the dead bodies. He didn't have intercourse with his mother after she died, but I mean, it, it's fairly common knowledge that he did at least forces genitalia into her severed head, so to speak. So it's still, you know, she talked about how she, she wasn't going to get laid because he was a killer or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think, didn't he, he was throwing darts at her head. And then I think he inserted himself into her face after he decapitated her and said, here, now you're getting laid or something like that here. Now you've, now you've had So sex.
1: something like, um, I've not had sex with a man for so many years because of my murderous son yeah yeah that's what he said something like and he that, said right?
2: so I cut off her head and I humiliated her corpse, and said there that's what he said
1: that's right the I think she was the or at least the only one I know of that he did intentional mutilation to like her vocal cords
2: yeah he cut them out and put them in the garbage disposal yeah and, it, um, and screamed I, I the, at her head
1: Yeah, the the other dismemberment, dismemberments seem to have a functional component.
2: Well, it's for easy dumping, not that I'm promoting that, but it's for easier Mm -hmm. transportation, whereas with her, it was very personal, you know, he killed her, he finally did what he basically had been either directly or indirectly fantasizing about his entire life, and while I'm here, you know, it saw this anger. It was probably, I mean, I'm not promoting murder at all, but imagine how cathartic that would have been for him. And so you just like, I'm still angry. So I'm going to grab her vocal cords and shove them in the garbage disposal. And I'm going to put her head up here and throw darts at it. Like he just had to make sure she was completely humiliated.
1: I love the rage. Came mm-hmm. up at the one time.
2: Mm -hmm. And that would be, and it was so, in my mind anyway, I see that it would have been just so explosive and so cathartic and just such a moment for him that that's kind of part of my reasoning why I think maybe he wouldn't have done it afterwards. Like maybe he would have gotten most of that out Mm -hmm. in that time. So I almost feel like he knew he was going to split. He killed his mom. There's no escaping that. You know, random girls, please don't kill anyone. Random girls on a college campus are one thing, that's nameless, faceless, even though they have faces. And he killed his mom and he still, I just feel like there was so much emotion and everything in it that he just, it's like Sally, I think her name was or something, was just like the bonus. I think it was just I've just, I've got to just end one more life and then I'm done. I don't think Sally really fits the pattern. I think it was just in the moment of passion, basically for him, it would be a moment of passion for us, obviously it's murder, but I don't think Sally was one of those where he's punishing his mom. I think it was one of those where he just still had that little bit left. And, and maybe because a little bit of that, I don't want to say shame, but a little bit of that, uh Oh, what have I done?
1: I I just wanted to say, like, I know that I can have a could, we're, we're talking about some pretty horrific things with without right. a lot of affect about it, but uh, in no way are we, we're trying to understand this. We're not condemning yeah. any of it.
2: No, absolutely not. And, and I'm very, I want to make sure that that is perfectly clear. We are not celebrating these men. We are not. It's It's nothing positive. It's that I have this bottomless well of a need to understand all things human behavior and how the mind works and why people do the things that they do. And and my, my big thing is, this is what I try to tell people when they are in front of me asking me about why I'm so interested in this stuff. You know, I have had probably more negative things happen to me in my childhood than Edmund did. Right. And yet there's a part of me and I understand there's some gender there's some gender differences in, in the true crime world and, and I understand how that works. But if we're just speaking quite plainly and generically, there's a part of me that no matter how mad I get, no matter how threatening I am in my own mind, there's a part of me that just knows not to. You know, there's just like a switch that goes, Okay, that's enough. You either have to just shut down, go to sleep, whatever, right? right. And so, because I know that murdering people is wrong. I I know that. And it's not just because, you know, the powers that be tell me it's wrong. I know it's wrong. So what is going on in these people that they don't have that switch? Because if that switch is there, they're going to naturally not do these things. So there's so many people that try to tell me, but they knew it was against the law and they still continue to do it. It's like, well, but you're not understanding that There's environmental factors and then there's inherited, there's broken brains. You know, I was talking to you about that earlier today. You know, sometimes somebody's brain is just broken. You things are firing on cylinders. And if one of them, one of the timing is just slightly off, then you're you're talking about someone who knows that it's not okay to kill and has stuck a knife in someone before that cylinder has finally went off. You get what I'm saying? And I want to know these things. I want to understand these things because not only does it help me, understand how things work but it's people like you and i who are able to think about these things and not just sit and be horrified by the crime scene photos and and the you know descriptions of what they did to them if you can let go of that if it's people like you and i that want to understand these things so completely that are going to make these discoveries to help yep it's not that we get off on the gore and guts no it's It's, how can i prevent this
1: yeah, you know, it's it's how uh, it, you you study the past to understand it to prevent it.
2: Right. And what's really interesting um, with Ed, and then we can get to the psychosexual developmental factors there. But um, another thing with that is that um, his father actually called his mother once because she was just beating the tar out of him, and you know he's hollering as children do. And she said, shut up, you're going to make the neighbors think I'm killing you or hurting you or something while she's beating him, which is yeah. hilarious to me because I had a saying said to me that was somewhat similar. But um, his his father, they'd been divorced and his father didn't live there. And his father actually called his mother and said, you need to calm down or, or I'm going to call social services on you. Like she, he was going, you know, the dad who was so, I don't want to say subservient, but, you know, he was just very... Well, oh, I don't know what you'd say, but, you know, he put up with her so much. Edmund Jr., Ed's father, put up with Clarnell so much and everything. And yet he did actually intervene, even in those times in the 50s, I guess, and said, you either stop hitting him or I'm making phone calls. So there was the one episode where his father stood up for him. So no wonder his father was like God to him, you know?
1: Yeah, uh, he he was differential to her. Because mm-hmm. his path of least resistance, most likely. Yeah.
2: He said that his dad treated him like a little gentleman, and he was the only person to do so in his life.
1: That's interesting. Well, I was just, you know, I think we've covered a lot of this, um, but it's it's interesting to to look at. Because we have notes fiction. over here. Right. So it's like, the, what were the parental attitudes towards sex and this idea of like repression um, suppression know, suppression uh indulgence right and mm-hmm. um and at the time what was the availability and access to erotica which, right i mean we have a hypersexualized society today and they have had for a long time um it was things were more salacious mm-hmm. in those days right um right what were the general attitudes and the cultural changes in attitudes towards sex?
2: Well, you know, when Ed got out of Atascadero, it was 71. So we're talking just barely out of 1969 and Manson and free love and drugs and, yeah. Hate you probably. know. Right. And um, Gary had time to, I don't know that he adult, it, you know, had anything to do with the hippie movement, but he certainly had exposure to all of that, you know, more so than Ed
1: did. And one thing we didn't touch on was um, any history of head trauma, which is oh. another kind of hallmark about this mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, any, any kind of brain abnormalities, especially in the prefrontal cortex, uh, it's kind of the governor, that's where we do all of our executive functioning, um, and, and folks like myself with ADHD, uh, we can have difficulties in impulse control for those types of things. And if you if you look at the brain scans of neurotypical versus neurodivergent, a lot of times there's a there's a significant difference in activity in those those two things. Um, we talked about the role of uh, the amygdala, and we we kind of um, talked a little bit about. Was there any um, difficulties in labor delivery, such as hypoxia that could uh, cause some uh, changes in brain development? And then just thinking about how everything in the environment during the formation of sexual identity and arousal and those type of things can all become Uh, precipitating factors so it can become conditioned stimuli to and that's where we I mean we'll pathologize it and call it a paraphilia Um, that would be that would be a future episode I would love to hear about is just some of those paraphilias and and how they develop that's that's well we can certainly do
2: that yeah we can definitely do that I've got my notebook here that's got like I'll show you. I'll cut this out, but like, there's one page of names. There's another page with names. I have, and I'm starting on this one, so I've got plenty of, yeah, yeah. plenty of stuff.
1: Do you want to show the um, uh, merch stuff?
2: Oh yeah, so we got to talk about the merch. Okay. So we did this compare and contrast of Edmund Kemper and Gary Ridgway. And Doc and I were working on something in the background to commemorate this episode, being the first one, hopefully a successful one. I hope that you all love it. Let us know that we have created merch. So why don't you Mm -hmm. show them what we've created? This episode is called Mommy Issues. So we have Uh... a Mommy Issues T-shirt. So for this episode, if you have enjoyed it, then uh, we are working with a... Uh, creator or a person who makes the merch and it is a small business it is it is a lovely person who is sort of doing this by herself so we have sourced the merch uh, materials from a small business so um, while the cost might be a buck or two extra you are supporting a small business a very lovely person Um, I'll put the link to the merch in the notes along with Ed's uh, parole uh hearing from two thousand and seventeen It's just paperwork to read, and outside of that, I think we have covered it. Everyone let us know if you have enjoyed this this different format. This is my first interview type podcast and if you enjoy this, be sure and let me know so that we can, we we already have ideas for future ones if you guys are interested at all. as always, thanks for listening. You are muchly muchly appreciated, and I think that's it. You have anything else you want to add?
1: Thank you. This has been great. Drink come <laughs> true.
2: Well, thank you. Well, hopefully, we'll do some more of these. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. But thank you so much for your time.
1: All right. Have a good night.
2: Hey, you too. All right. Bye. Bye. Uh,
0: anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.